podcast this week, we have a veritable blitz of amazing all-star guests, including Blitz Bazawule, the director of The Color Purple. Plus, we say to the stars of All of Us Strangers, Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel, All of Us Friends? <laughs> and we're joined by Alexander Payne, director of The Holdovers, and his Oscar-nominated star... Paul Giamatti. <laughs> very, very exciting. All that plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that also was overlooked at this year's Oscars. And you don't hear Hillary Clinton banging on about that, do you? Disgraceful, quite frankly. Disgraceful. Anyway, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. We're back in the studio. Hooray! We're back in the studio. No, wait. Uh, is that a what? hooray thing? I don't no, know. No, it isn't. Yeah. Um, I apologize. For that was episode wrong. 601 after the frankly triumphant evening that was episode 600 on Saturday night at King's Place, London, when Tom Hiddleston was there and Mayan McKenna Bruce was there and Ray Winston was there. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. And you can listen to that, by the way, if you want, as a podcast, or you can still see it. I believe, for a couple more days on the King's Place K-Player. Uh, you can see it in its unedited form uh, by going along and buying yourself a streaming pass. I can thoroughly recommend it, not least because the podcast version is in order, makes a little bit more sense, uh, is probably a little less libelous, and has some of the ruder bits cut out. <laughs> Thank God Not that, that we were blue. We weren't blue. But anyway, here we are back in the studio and we begin another century of podcasts with this episode. And I'm joined by my three colleagues of such a lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. All the better for having 600. Yes, it was good. It was good fun. It It was was, a great night. It was much, much fun. It was was... lovely meeting many of our listeners who were generally delightful, apart from that one guy. No, I'm kidding. Um, Generally delightful. It was lovely. We had some really nice conversations. Yeah. (laughs) I'm right here. I know exactly who you're talking about. You're talking about our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. Hello, James. Hello. How are you? Uh, I am okay. I'm 600% better than I was last week. All right. Good, 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 good. Someone who wasn't at episode 600, despite the fact they were offered a ticket. Uh, and they were down. You were down, admittedly, to interview a guest who dropped out at the very last minute. It's Amon Warman, the second best dressed film journalist in this room. Amon, I'm stepping up. I'm stepping up. Look I'm at this. Seeing, wow. I'm seeing the you jacket. You see this jacket? You I'm see this jacket. jacket? Where's the matching trousers? 20 quid in TK Maxx. I don't know. I couldn't afford that. I don't need matching trousers. I mean, you don't need matching trousers. Amon, what is the secret to coordinating an outfit. Trousers. <laughs> you think? Wear them. What? I always thought they yes. were optional. I always like to flop around, but no, apparently <laughs> yeah. apparently not. As nature intended. Yes. Uh, in the breeze. Go, go full shifty barry. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, oh, no. but apparently Murder they frown the upon that sort of thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, seriously, I'm on. Like, so yeah. what, what, is, what are the building blocks of a good outfit? Ask him for a friend. Do either of you wear cologne? I've been to cologne. Does that count? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I don't wear... Aftershave. My natural no. musk, I like to think, oh, is appealing God. enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's what that is. No, I yeah. no, I don't because I like I I I at one point thought I should dabble in it, and I even selected a scent that I quite liked, but I never ever use it. <laughs> uh, was it vaguely of piss? <laughs> it was. Yeah, that's actually where it comes from. Uh, no, I, but, but I don't wear it because it just feels like it feels weird. It's very subjective, right? Like yeah. one person, oh, that's lovely. Another person, like, ew, you smell like Bigfoot's dick. Like, you know, you you can never really guess how people will react to a, a scent. 
I, 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 I don't shave. So that's, you know, for me, after shave has always been about True. after shave. Yeah. I don't no. shave. Although for episode 600, I did get I did get a man to groom my facial hair, which had gone quite caveman-y. And so I went to a place in Greenwich and he he did the whole you, hot towel experience. It was oh, really, really, really quite lovely. Was this, was this like a sex place? It was a sex place. Yeah. Uh, but the only happy ending was we delivered a great show. Hey. <laughs> oh, but uh, yeah, and I really, I really liked that. But You know you can do that yourself, right? Like with- <laughs> No, you, I, I've tried and it's it's terrible. You, you need you need people. There's something about lines and things like that. I don't really quite understand it. But It's not necessarily about how they feel about it. It's about how it makes me feel. It makes me feel good to coordinate clothes. It makes me feel good to wear cologne. And I, I wear cologne every day. I have different scents for different activities. I have one that's just for Saturdays. You have a Saturday I smell. Have a Saturday smell. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. What does Saturday smell like, Helen? Um, it's, uh, Fake it's, the piss. <laughs> not in my house. I don't that's know what you're doing. Yeah, um, it's just a very, it's a very sweet smell. It would not, you would not get taken seriously if you wore it to the office. So for the mm. office, I have one that's more rosemary-y. It's actually Savoy really? Steam by um, Penhaligans, which is mm, I need delightful. to sniff you more often because I've not detected these smells. I, well, I strongly urge perfume you. Perfume does, yeah, uh, HR would get involved. But like, I feel like a lot of perfume doesn't last well on my skin. Mm. So even if mm. I put it on, it's not necessarily... It's the Northern Irish skin. Oh, no. It rejects <laughs> nice do, things. I do keep a little thing of cologne in my bag as a, a, to top up every, every now and then if, if I'm feeling... If, if the smell has worn off. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, listen, we... Probably should start the film podcast <laughs> portion of this show because, uh, yeah. you know, this is episode 601. We just had the big man with Logie himself on episode 600. That might have got a lot of people interested in the show and they might want to check out episode 601. Shit. And then it's 10 minutes people, you know, talk about sprinkling cologne onto their nethers. I mean, frankly, that's not the podcast you signed up for. The podcast you signed up for is one in which we interrogate Hollywood's practices with, with figure. <laughs> Razor insight. <laughs> Razor sharp insight. Shall we have a question? Sure. Uh, the question comes from Yves Saint Laurent. <laughs> no, the question comes from Marcus Bumman on uh, Twitter. Bumman Marcus. Sometimes Oscars get given out to actors and directors seemingly because it's their turn, e.g., Scorsese and The Departed, Departed, uh, DiCaprio and The Revenant, Revenant. <laughs> For the recipients of those sorts of Oscars, what is the film they should have won for? I completely emphasized the wrong word in that sentence. <laughs> what is the film they should have won for? <laughs> for instance, DiCaprio in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. So this is a question that could take us all year if we really went through it forensically with a fine tooth comb. So I'm going to restrict this to the last 10 years. So someone who's won in the last 10 years and if you feel that they deserved an Oscar for a different performance. Jimbo. The Scorsese one is obviously the the, the first based answer, isn't it? We're immediately going to 18 years ago, but I like your style. (laughs) Can you imagine? It's 18 years since it departed. Is it really? It's 18 years since it departed. That's terrifying. But obviously the general consensus is he got it for the departed. He deserved it for anything else. Mean Streets, maybe. Uh, uh, so many possible films he could have got it for, but he got it for that. I, I really love The Departed, but and I guess it did right a historic wrong, but it does still feel a little bit like, really? It feels, uh, The Departed is a, a really, really fun film, uh, as is Infernal Affairs, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. I would urge you to Better watch them film, both. Better film, I would say, personally. I think that's, there's a, yes, saying. but... But the dialogue in The Departed is incredible. Yeah. Like, yeah. everything Mark Wahlberg says is gold. Everything Alec Baldwin says is gold. Uh, is it? Is it Nicholson. 
Nicholson. Is it Wahlberg who goes, you know, and I think it's Baldwin who goes, who are you? I'm the guy who does this job. You must be the other guy. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it might be Wahlberg actually, but it's just, there's so many yeah. great lines in it. But I think that winning the best picture Oscar did it a disservice because it is a fun throwaway popcorn movie I don't think Scorsese genuinely went into that film thinking this was going to be an Oscar film mm. at all. Like obviously it's mm-hmm. got huge mega stars in it, but it's a Boston crime flick and how often do things like that win best picture? Yeah. You know. Uh and so people are now I think approach it as oh this is high art mm. and it's high arse really. <laughs> That's harsh. <laughs> it's true it is. It's just like it's just Scorsese and his pals just having a bit of fun and I think he was just letting off some steam Bennett and I don't think <laughs> he intended it to be this great statement about anything. Obviously there's there's themes under the surface of course there are. Uh, there's a very very well hidden theme about rats. I don't know if you can figure it out, if you can spot it. It's very very subtle in The Departed um, as indeed is Leonardo DiCaprio's performance. Oh. Uh, as as man so clearly an undercover cop it's, it's a wonder the movie's more than 10 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like who's this undercover the cop they're looking for and he's like sweating bullets <laughs> I think it's that guy who's having heart palpitations over there if you ask me but, anyway. but yes The Departed I have a twofer okay. what from uh, 30 Rock yes. he didn't win anything no I know but I have a different twofer okay so Jeff Bridges won 2009 for Crazy Heart oh, right? did. which meant yeah. that he lost 2010 for True Grit oh Colin Firth lost in 2009 for A Single Man, right, which Colin meant he Firth. won yeah. in, Colin, in 2010 for The King's Speech. Just flip him around <laughs> and everybody's happier. I don't know. I don't know. Who did he beat in 2010? Who did he 2010, beat? 2010, Jeff Bridges was one of the... Uh, Javier Bardem for Beautiful, though. Uh, <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg for The Social Network Jesse and Eisenberg. James Franco for 127 Hours. I'm just... I, I genuinely, I would, I would swap those two right around because they gave Jeff Bridges... The Oscar for Crazy Heart, let's be honest, because they were like, shit, we haven't given Jeff Bridges an Oscar. I'm sure that was on our to-do list. What the hell, guys? And they could have just waited him for one Iron more Man. year. And they snubbed him for... Is that what they snubbed him for? For me, they snubbed him for True Grit, where I think he is genuinely fantastic. Perhaps he couldn't understand a goddamn word he said. I don't even think it cares. I don't even care. It was he played Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've, I would personally give DiCaprio the Oscar Wolf of Wall Street. for Wolf of Wall Street because oh, then we, okay. you know, he, he can just chill. The problem was, I think, when he did Wolf of Wall Street, I think he was still thirty nine, and to be a man and win an Oscar, it helps to be forty plus. Not even kidding. Oh, okay. Look at the stats. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, okay. 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 Uh, Joe Pesci, by the way, should have won for Lethal Weapon three and not for Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> Lethal Weapon two. Uh, that was you. a preemptive correction by the Oscars because the Academy gave him the Oscar in nineteen ninety, and really he deserved it for nineteen ninety three. That's what I'm saying. Or Home Alone two, which you know. Anyway, what, I'm on. What can Phoenix won it for Joker a couple of years Did back? Helen, how do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> I just always pretended that he wanted for Gladiator instead. But 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 why? Okay, that's a different category. He would have been supporting for Gladiator uh, for a start. Okay. I, am I, I honestly? And I know this is going to be an unpopular opinion. I don't think he's very good in Gladiator. He's awesome. I was in Gladiator. astonished that he got nominated for that. Oh. Astonished. He was fine. He was but, awesome. I mean, was he? Am I not merciful? No. I mean. <laughs> 
again, they, they do sometimes. So sometimes they're like, oh shit, we had this guy on our to-do list and we still haven't given him an Oscar. We better mm. sort that out. And sometimes they're like, wow, that guy acted the most. We have to nominate him. <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying that. I'm not relating it to anybody in particular. Mm. So, okay. Joaquin Phoenix, anyone else? Any advances on Gladiator for Joaquin Phoenix? Uh, and performances he maybe should have won the Oscar for? Um, Will Smith won it for King Richard. Yeah. No, it's a good mm. performance. I'm not saying it's not a good performance. You know, I like this question so much, I think we may have to mm-hmm. revisit it next week, when maybe in a different category. But here's mm. my question. Shouldn't he have maybe won for Ali instead? Mm. Now, your well, problem with this one yeah. is he was up against Denzel Washington for <laughs> training correct. day that day. Oh, you can't beat Denzel. But if you take, if you don't give Denzel the, the Oscar for training day, can give you it, give it to him for something else? Malcolm X. The fact that he That's didn't what we do. Yes. Mind boggling to me. Let's be honest, the training so. day Oscar was apology for Malcolm X. No, 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 no. I mean, the training day Oscar was deserved. Good. It was He's deserved. very good, but he was better in Malcolm X. Agreed. He was pretty fucking good in both of them, let's be yeah. honest. Okay, I mean, yeah. Yeah, but also, if Have we give him... Have you seen Heart Condition? Excuse me, if we give him the Oscar Why for Malcolm X, if we give him the Oscar for Malcolm X, then we don't have to give it uh, to Al Pacino for Senate the Women oh, as an oh, apology oh. for not giving it to him for, like, a lot of He's other films. He's amazing in Scent of a Woman. He, mm. Tell me one thing that you remember about Scent of a Woman <laughs> that isn't hua or dancing. He won a huasca, didn't he? <laughs> Look, I'm just saying. Pacino, Pacino is the absolute er text of this, isn't he? In, in a way that absolutely. he is. That, that, that's the one. I mean, there's Paul Newman as well, right? Because, you know, oh. and, and then there are actors who were nominated many, many times. Peter O'Toole, for example. I think seven Oscar nominations, not a single win. But we're focusing on people who have won an mm-hmm. Oscar. Um Paul so, Rudd, oh, famously overlooked, of course, for Ant Man and the Wasp, wow. the menu this year. But anyway, but, uh, so Al Pacino, Pacino right, yeah. was nominated. Nominated, for yes. The Godfather, never heard Serpico, of it. Serpico, The yes. Godfather Part Two, Good Dog film. Day Afternoon, great film, and Justice for All, Dick, <laughs> Dick Tracy, and Glengarry Glenn Ross, and The Irishman, and he won for Scent of a Woman. Jeez, I'm just saying. <laughs> That's embarrassing for everybody involved. <laughs> it is embarrassing for everybody involved. It is embarrassing for everybody involved. Okay, so let's take so we gave we Scent gave, of a Woman. We're taking it away from him we're for Scent of a it Woman. Away from Pacino, mm. giving it to Denzel Washington. We're taking Training Day I'm and really replacing it now. with Ali. Okay, I thought the I thought the rules of screen drafts were complicated. What's going on here? So hang on a second. So we're taking. Is this a heist? Or do we actually have to it's go into heist. these people's houses? It's, it's not a heist. We're, we have a time machine. We're not machine. stealing anything. We're just in, re, re-engraving. We have a time machine. <laughs> we're going back in time. We're replacing the card in the envelope. And That's and much more complicated than what I'm proposing. And no. the best use of a time machine I can think of. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really is. We'll stop off on the way to baby Hitler's. But also, <laughs> think about it. If, if Will Smith doesn't win the Oscar that year for King Richard... He doesn't slap Chris Rock. He doesn't slap Chris Rock. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, sorry. Sorry, well, okay. Okay, okay, okay. If you really want... We Two-time could, Oscar winner, Joe Pesci. Yeah, if you really want, that year, he was up against Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth. Yeah. So we could just swap it right back around if you want. You're not I giving Denzel an Oscar for The Tragedy of Macbeth. Hey, he was awesome in that film. Awesome Come that film. on, out damn spots, honestly. <laughs> out <laughs> dreadful opinions. Oh, is this He's a dagger good. I see He's good, but he didn't even attempt Scottish. Oh, good Lord. Look, I'm just saying... We can write some wrongs here, okay? It's very important. All right, okay. So we are breaking in to Denzel Washington's house. Again, I'm, I did not sign this To re-engrave his Oscar 
Oh boy. And then one day he wakes up and he looks at his Oscar and, and it's like, it says, virtuosity. <laughs> and the other one says, heart condition. <laughs> finally, yes, finally. Should Russell Crowe have gotten for virtuosity? Absolutely. Got virtuosity, one two punch. Denzel yeah. Washington, best actor. Taking Russell Crowe, best supporting actor. Yeah. Boom. Done. Take away his Oscar for a beautiful mind. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, nobody, mm. nobody's happy with that. No yeah. one's happy with that, apart from him. He was pretty I mean, I'm sure he at the time. Yeah, I'm sure he's happy. I've always, in my, in my head, mm. I don't, Jimbo, are you like this? I had a conversation with someone recently who thought that Joaquin Phoenix had won the Oscar for Gladiator. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, because I'm, I'm outraged every time I remember that he won the Oscar for Gladiator, <laughs> even though he didn't win the Oscar for Gladiator. I'm appalled by that imagined injustice. <laughs> and in my mind. I remember Russell Crowe winning for Gladiator as well, and like he did the one-two punch of Gladiator and A Beautiful Mind, but he didn't. No. He didn't win no. for Gladiator. No. We were no. not entertained. We, we, we were entertained. <laughs> we were That's a problem. Because yeah. the Oscars frowned upon entertainment, except for The Departed. Ooh. I mean, Gladiator did win Best Picture that year. Well, they love entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make up your mind, Oscars. Also, I'm just saying, if we took... Tom Hanks's Oscar often for Forrest Gump, right? He still has his Philadelphia. That's safe. That's uh, in the who back. would win? Who would win right. that year? Who would okay. win that year? So that year, he okay. was up against Morgan Freeman for the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, oh. give it to him. What? Exactly. <laughs> okay. I, I don't even have to continue, but yeah. I will. Please continue. Just Nigel Hawthorne for The Madness of King George. <laughs> okay. Paul Newman for Nobody's Fool. Oh. Again, not what Newman needed to win for, though. We'll talk about new Paul okay. Newman in a second. Okay. John Travolta for Pulp Fiction. Oh, uh, I thought that would make you think. No, that would make you think. But it's Morgan Freeman. It's Morgan Freeman. It's Morgan Freeman, which would give him three Oscars. Right? All right. I'm all right. So he would be tied because the the most that a best actor has won is three, right? Well, we haven't even got to Jack Nicholson's third win in as good as it gets yet, but go ahead. I mean, strike that from the fucking (laughs) right away. Morgan Freeman, we won for Glory and. No, Denzel won for Glory. Denzel won. What, Morgan what, Freeman's won for, for Million Dollar Baby. That was it. Strike that from the records. <laughs> <laughs> Give him 10 for the Shawshank Reception. Uh, that seems and, right. And um, that other one. <laughs> Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty. Yeah. Has he won twice? I'm pretty Did sure Morgan know? Freeman's won twice. These are things we could look up very I mean, they easily. Could, we could very easily look them up. I love that we're saving Chris no, Rock. No, he only has an Academy Award. <laughs> what? No! Yeah. No! Yeah. Surely not. No, so look, I'm just saying, we take Forrest Gump's Oscar Have they not him. seen Now You See Me Too? <laughs> Give it to the Shawshank Redemption. And actually, that for me would open up the chance to acknowledge Apollo 13, where I think Tom Hanks is fucking No, incredible. no, 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 no. I would, no, I'm just saying, no. I would. I, I am would. the captain now. Give it to Captain Phillips. Okay. I'm not. Yeah. Wait, hang on. What year is that? We're going to have to check. 2009. <laughs> 2011. 13. 2013-11. Why do I have to put up with you people? Uh, I don't see him on the list of nominees. That must be a mistake. Yeah, no, I don't remember him getting hey, nominated for that. Well, you know, yeah. you said a Pacino. Right, and you yeah. were going. Oh, here's a list of you know nominees and you know justice for all. And then there was a long gap because he took some time off. He took four years off Pacino in the '80s, but he also made a lot of terrible films in the '80s. Mm. But then he came back, and then he started like making great films again, like Sea of Love and whatnot. Mm-hmm. He didn't get nominated for Heat. Didn't get nominated for Heat. Now I know some people may think that's a legendarily terrible performance, Chris. Why would he be nominated? <laughs> He's amazing in Heat, mm. uh, and this allows me the time to trot out one of my my best Oscars are fucked up facts. We'll be talking about that later on. Uh, heat was not nominated for a single Oscar, folks. I mean, not one, not a single. This is what we're up against, Oscar. you know. Oh. 
One I mean, of the greatest movies of all time. It's a very difficult job that we have given ourselves here today. <laughs> I'm loving this, though. In, I'm in loving spreading this. the Oscars around mm. correctly. Yeah. To put right mm. what once went wrong. Show you very Hoping quickly. Each time. <laughs> <laughs> the next leap. We'll the, the Oscar. <laughs> oh my God, is Selma Sam Beckett's doing? Yeah. yeah. Yes. He's, he's leaping yeah. into Oscar voters and fucking it up. <laughs> leaving again. Now, that would be the evil leaper. Yeah. Oh, the oh. evil leaper. She is. Oh. Is that related to Dua Lipa? I don't know. Anyway, so uh, let's talk very, very quickly. And before I summarize, Paul Newman. So yeah. Paul Newman, this is interesting because Paul Newman won for The Color of Money in 1986. And obviously this is, <laughs> the 10-year rule has gone out the fucking window here. But uh, Paul Newman won 1986 for The Color of Money. Mm-hmm. Arguable that he might have won for another performance earlier. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and say the verdict. That would have been acceptable, or more acceptable at least. I mean, not that he's bad in the colour of money, of course. He's not bad in the colour of money, that's the thing, but it was very much the... Cool hand Luke, cool hand Luke, cool hand Luke. Yeah, cool hand Luke is a good call, isn't it? I mean, it's okay, but... Nobody can get 50 Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Interesting. I mean, also, and I would give him best supporting for Red Perdition, personally. I was going to say that. This is the life he chose, Helen, the life he leads. leads. And there is is but one one guarantee. The Oscars will will fucking overlook (laughs) it. Fuck's sake. I'm glad it's Pray for Paul Newman. What a line. What a a scene. I have not said what Leonardo DiCaprio performance I think he should have won the Oscar for, and that is, of course, the year that The Quick and the Dead swept the Oscars (laughs) in my weird alternative world. Sharon Stone, best actress, Gene Hackman, best actor, mm-hmm. Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio in a weird tie, weird tie along with Lance Henriksen and Keith David. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and Tobin Bell. That's writing a lot of... <laughs> the first time five actors from the same movie have been in the same category. Amazing. Oh, and Gary Sinise. Bless you. Wow. They, they acted to six actors. Amazing. Okay. Uh, wait, gonna, wait, hang on. Oh. Did you just leave out Gene Hackman? No, I said Gene Hackman, best actor. Oh, okay. Gene Hackman, the greatest actor of all time. Stop it, I'm on. Uh, it's a conversation to be had. It's a conversation to be had. Okay. Gene Hackman, the greatest actor of all time. I will accept that Denzel is in second place. Uh, so there we go. I really enjoyed that. Let's do it next week with best actress. Uh, and then we'll get bored and we'll wander off <laughs> the week after next. Uh, but that was really, really fun. And we saved Chris Rock. We, we, <laughs> we did. did save Chris Rock. We saved Chris Rock. Ah, oh, beautiful. Yeah. Okay. If you want to have your question read out on the Emperor podcast, you can get in touch with us uh, via Twitter. I'm on Twitter as at Chris Hewitt. You can slide in by DMs, as indeed this week's questioner did. Uh, and uh, you can reply to a panic shout out every now and again, or you can reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing, of course. A lot of guests this week. Who do you want first? We have Blitz Bazawule. Brilliant. Blitz Bazawule is the director <laughs> of The Color Purple, which is not a remake of no. the 1985 Steven Spielberg movie. Sure. Correct. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Based, of course, on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Alice Walker. Uh, this is an adaptation of the Tony Award winning mm-hmm. musical. Yeah, sure is. Which is based on Alice Walker's so it's novel. The, it's the Mean Girls model. It's the Mean Girls yeah. model. Yes. Yeah. It is very much that. It is very, very much that. Blitz Bazawule is the director of this film, which is out this week in cinemas right now. And uh, Helen went along to speak to him on Zoom mm-hmm. last year? Uh, yeah, I mean, very end of last year. Last month, you might say. You know? Oh. Yeah. And it was good? That's how I remember it. Excellent stuff. Here we go. Helen talking <laughs> to Blitz Bazawile. Do please enjoy. Blitz, hello. How are you doing? Hello. So, um... 
I mean, look, I've, I've got to ask. I mean, your your first film was picked up by Ava DuVernay's production company, I think. Um, you know, then you worked with Beyonce. Now you you've you know got Oprah as a producer. At this point, do you only pick up the phone if it's a living legend on the other end? Well, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, well, I've been really fortunate and blessed. You know, um, these women have really they've seen something in my work. And I've been incredibly supportive. These are all amazingly accomplished women in their fields. And um, what an honor it is to be in service of story um, uh, for them, around them, commissioned by them. So, yeah, I'm just fortunate, I should say. So, so tell me about your sort of relationship with this story. You know, did you did you watch the film as well? Had you had you also had to study the book, or is it something you'd picked up on your own? Yeah, no, I studied the book in college, so that was like my first introduction was through Alice Walker's brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Um, studied it for English writ- literature in in Kent State University, where I went, and um, yeah, it was very. Um, it was one of the first times I'd read any book certainly um by an african-american author that was very connected to the continent of africa i'd recently immigrated to the states and so anything that kind of was a conduit to back home was something that i was very excited about in the color purple exactly that the book really explores Nettie's life in africa in a very vast way um, anyway, so, you know, that was my first kind of foray. And then came Steven Spielberg's film after I was done with the book. And then, you know, um, I'd never saw the Broadway play, fortunately. But, you know, I was I was really fortunate to see clips of it when I was hired um, to play to to direct The Color Purple. Well, does that help you, though, as a director? You've got nothing, sort of no preconceived notions of of certainly the musical version. You, you're free to just let your imagination run wild as you listen to those songs, as you hear that music. I think so, perhaps. You know, there they may have been a kind of a, an aloofness, you know, and, and, and almost a naivete, you know, around, around that. And I think sometimes that's helpful in your bold, brave choices you're going to make. Because if you have way too much reverence, then you're just going to either freeze or mimic, neither of which I wanted to do. So for me, it was really about, you know, finding something in this story that I could make mine and could be something I related to. And it ended up being the imaginative quality of Celie's headspace. And, you know, growing up around people who had suffered abuse and trauma, my mother being one of them. And I know how much her imagination and her headspace um, was her refuge and kind of how she passed that on to me as, as, as my wings, you know, growing up in Ghana, this just couldn't be further away from where most of us end up. You know, mm-hmm. I'm you know, certainly the first Ghanaian to make a, a studio picture. So that tells you how much dreaming is necessary for that to happen. But all of that came from, you know, growing up with a mother who had those qualities mm-hmm. deeply. Um, and so, you know, giving that to Celie was, I think, the one of the best things that 
happened uh, or, or to me on this project was finding that kernel. And it also it also really sparked from going back to Alice Walker's work and those first opening lines, dear God, I'm 14 years old. And like, you know, knowing that anybody who, you know, could write letters to God must have an imagination. And so that really, really became my 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 personal purview. And I knew that if I could just keep expanding that mental space, um, it'll also help me eschew what most people miscategorize, you know, as docile and 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 passive people who have suffered abuse and trauma, which couldn't be further from the truth. The reality is that people who have suffered abuse and trauma are constantly trying to work their way out of it. So that's kind of was it. I knew that, okay, I could definitely contribute something unique to this canon. And I mean, that really kind of ties in, I felt, with your previous work with the burial of Kojo and with with Black is King. I mean, just where the, the visuals are so stunning they kind of leap off the screen your use of kind of saturated color and everything else and you've i guess you know kind of limited yourself in your color palette for a lot of the kind of reality based bits of this film i feel like you're kind of holding holding yourself back almost but but then you do you know give flight to that in in Celia's imagination i guess is that was that very much what you were kind of going for absolutely dan lost in my dp and i always talked about how we were going to you know create this um color kind of um bifurcation you know one that was going to adhere to uh let's call it southern light you know warm and and realistic and then kind of more a sleeker more steel blue light you know that you know um more vivid when it came to imaginative tones so like when Celia is on that giant gramophone that blue teal like that's leaking out on her is an example of that. Um, but, you know, again, I grew up in Ghana where color, you know, we don't shy away from color. You know, on Sundays, you know, the church lines are full of the most colorful fabrics you can ever find. So, like, I, that's my source of color palette. I don't, you know, that's what I bring to cinema. Um, you know, I, I also feel like a lot of times when, may, you know, when films are supposed to be period films, Often the the images look desaturated and mm-hmm. sepia tone. I also think maybe part of it is because you know black and white photos that survived from you know let's call it a hundred years ago are often the reference. Yeah. But Dan and I were very clear about that. Going, you know what? These people lived in color. We have to push past these photos that have survived these many years. And we have to go to where they lived. You know, there were no fans, no ACs. They sweat. The skin, you know, reflected light. I mean, they, you know, those things are kind of what you're feeling and seeing or leap off that screen. But it's as, as much of it was just based on Dan and I's conversation about this uh, oscillation between reality and, and, and imagination. Mm. Um, but just just in terms of color, I mean, one of those striking early scenes that that really uh, stayed with me was the running onto the beach um, just after that opening in the tree. Am I am I just being wildly oversimplistic and reading too much into it to see a sort of Daughters of the Dust reference there because it felt very similar visually to that movie? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Julie Dash fan, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure some of it kind of kind of seeps in there. That's so, what's so interesting about that shot is that was actually the very first shot of the very first day. 
Wow. The movie. And apparently that I, well, I've been told that's not usual. So um, I'm quite proud of that shot, but yeah, it was really just to capture the innocence of this, these girls, you know, often, you know, I, I don't think black young girls are afforded the grace of youth. And, uh, you know, I think that's, it was very important that all these things that were going to happen to them had to be contextualized around this freedom and joy that they had. So when it's ripped away, you know, it, it, it there's actually deep feelings about, about that. So finding them in that tree and finding them run and just the excitement and freedom away from these men who will eventually control a vast portion of their lives, I thought was a very important way to open. Absolutely. And it, and it feels like no spoilers for the three people out there who, who haven't come across this story before, but it feels like the, the film comes full circle back to back to almost that point at the end, which I thought was really lovely as well. It absolutely uh, is. And it was actually the same exact tree that we kind of all circle around in the end. It was very intentional. And then also keeping it white, you know, you know, you know, having them dressed in all white in the opening, the girls, and then everybody around the tree being in white, for me, it was also a great bookend, you know, and, and also just, again, showing that innocence and purity, you know, which was the opening and then how the innocence and purity finds its way back around the tree when everyone's kind of going through their process of being fallible and forgiving themselves and forgiving each other. So I think, you know, ultimately film is a very poetic medium and that's kind of what you want to do is kind of tap into that deep you know uh unspoken subtext yeah well so i mean uh, tell me about your cast because you have just an extraordinary lineup of actors this is what we call an embarrassment of riches from from start to finish but um you've you know you've taken a couple of people you have a couple of people in there who have been in the stage show but you've really looked way beyond broadway you've looked way beyond you know the established film stars uh, you've got people from TV, people from movies who I certainly haven't seen sing and dance before in the movies. I may have missed it. Um, you know, how what was what was the sort of starting point? How did they fall into place for you? Well, you know, a cast for me is kind of the embodiment of whatever spirit your movie is. And so I was really looking to cast people with the right heart and headspace. You know, I was less concerned about who's been in a Broadway show, who's not, who's sang, who is not. That was really not my concern. My concern was, first of all, do these people feel like the characters? And then the other thing is, do they have the endless well of talent and emotion to kind of, you know, you know, perform on this sprawling level? The story, you know, traverses almost 40 years and characters evolve. So that's what I was looking for, you know, with Fantasia, who originally didn't want to do the role and I could understand it because it was deeply affecting to her mm. and she did it on Broadway because her life really was parallel to Celie's, you know, but it wasn't until I kind of showed her these clips and, 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 and previses and sketches I had done to kind of show her examples of the places we will go, you know, and the fact that this was not going to be what she had done on Broadway. This was going to Celie's headspace was going to give her agency. Mm. I think she appreciated that about the role. Taraji, who is great, but had, you know, never sung on this level. Um, you know, uh, my, I was also th maybe a bit, maybe subconsciously thoughtful around 
you know, how there could be a codependency amongst these women, you know, uh, and certainly the entire cast as a whole, you know, having some, you know, Oscar winning actors like Lou Gossett Jr., but also having someone like a Felicia Perlin Posse, who's never been, you know, a John Batiste, who's never been in a major motion picture, you know, so there were all of these myriads of levels. And I think that that naturally created a codependency, even people who were very experienced actors had not sung before. So they had to depend on the singers. Those who had sung on, you know, and won American idols had never acted. So they were dependent on it. And I think it just naturally created a family d- dynamic that continues today. I mean, I totally love them and they love each other. So it makes this job quite easy. That's amazing. And of course, you yourself have a, have a musical background, which I imagine like helps you because I, I hear a lot of directors talk about how musical is the hardest kind of film to make. It is just punishing. You've got so many elements on top of your normal, impossible workload to, to, to manage. But, but does your background help you with that? Did you, did you feel a little bit more, I don't know, comfortable with it than, than you think you might have done otherwise? Yeah, I think I, I was comfortable, you know, and, and it was I was comfortable because I know music as storytelling innately, but I also know black music, which is a very specific cadence in because black music ultimately, you know, and it's e- evolution from the continent, the drums on the continent that, you know, become the, the spirituals and the cotton fields that become gospel and the church blues and the juke joints, jazz and the, in, in the, in the hall, you know, in the clubs. And then everything else that's birthed rock and roll and hip hop, R&B, it's endless. And so for me, it was very easy to kind of find that thread between all of that music. That was number one, but also number two, figuring out the cadence and, and how, you know, this music could begin in diegetic ways and then eventually become these larger, bigger numbers. So right from the opening of the movie, when you hear those horses' hoofs, you know, and the girls kind of doing patty cake, that becomes the banjo, and then it kind of slowly builds into this massive score piece. I wanted to set the audience up to know that, no, the music will not fall out the sky like most musicals. It was going to come out of circumstances. And when people will sing, it'll only be because the words just are not enough. And this is the only reason they're singing. Like when the guys are put, you know, building the house, you know, at some point they're going to break out in song. It happens anyway in real life, by the way. You know, I've walked past many construction sites and I've heard hollering and hooting and singing. So, you know, it's part of, the cadence in is, is very natural. And I felt like I could easily do that for this film because the, the source material allowed me to. I've also got to ask, I mean, you mentioned sketches. I mean, you storyboard your films a lot as well. So was that something you did on this one? Absolutely. Yes. When I did Barrel of Kojo, I sketched over 600 frames to make that movie. Um, same with Black is King. That's actually what got me the job. I sketched all this stuff to show Beyonce what my intents were, and she hired me right there on the spot. Um, and I think uh, in this film, it was even more important because it was such a sprawling cast, sprawling crew, um, 40 years of story to tell, many, many bodies, many costumes, many... Props. So I just wanted to make sure that there was always something we could go back to. And um, so, yeah, I drew over 1,200 frames. 
And that was a lot of work. It took several months to do. Not only did I draw them, I also kind of scanned them and edited them together. I hired voice actors to kind of lay in some some the lines and from the script. And then um, I even got, you know, sounds from YouTube and created a sound design piece. And, you know, it kind of was pseudo mandatory for anybody hired on my film to sit through this two hour pencil sketches mixed with some of Fatima Robinson's choreo. So and for me, it was important because people I saw people cry. I saw them laugh. I saw them go through all the emotions that this final movie gives. And I wanted to be sure that it worked before I shot a single frame. Now, I don't bring storyboards on set. I'm not the kind of say, oh, that's how I intended it. No, it's really just to create a sandbox for my brilliant collaborators to go, okay, that's what Blitz is thinking. Because I really believe that, you know, when everybody reads a script, they're making a different movie based on their own, the way they see the world. But when they see those images, go, oh yeah, that's where he intends to put the camera. It's going to be a top shot, you know, top lighting, you know, this where the shadow is going to fall. That's kind of his intent. And I think that it made for all of us, this very large sprawling crew to make one movie. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank and best so of luck with the film. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Okay, so that is Blitz Bazawule and The Color Purple is out in cinemas right now. And listen, I know we banged on about the Oscars for about 20 minutes in the listener question section. So don't you worry, folks at home. There will be no more Oscar chat <laughs> in this podcast apart from the next 20 minutes uh, because this week the Oscar nominations came out. Now, I think we're going to do a show just before the Oscars come out in which we're going to talk about each category in depth. Um, so we're not going to do that now. But we are going to talk about, I guess, some of the oversights and omissions, uh, rants at the ready, folks. If yeah. there's anything that really particularly uh, boiled your well, I'm, I'm gerwigging out, obviously, oh. because Greta was snubbed. I'm also, it's like Margot being snubbed is less of an issue for me, though it is still a big issue for me because I feel like to recognise the... Ryan Gosling for Barbie and for then Barbie. to not recognise Margot Robbie as Barbie in Barbie, given the precision of that performance feels imbalanced and and I know the category shortlist is larger but I always think it, it, it always bugs the shit out of me when something's nominated for best film and then the director's just ignored oh yeah this film was but immaculately that, conceived it just yeah, dropped out of the sky but yeah it is I mean, a numbers game yeah, yeah it is I get literally. that but I do feel like Gerwig should have been in that lineup, and it just felt And but the question I have for you guys you know because mm -hmm. people talk a lot about it's because she's a female director it's she, is it because of that or is it because it's a comedy it's mostly because it's a comedy, I think. Look, I'm disappointed, but I'm not up in arms. And I think some of the reactions online have been demented, if I'm honest, about this. Uh, you could equally be up in arms about the omission of Greta Lee and, and Celine Song for yep. past lives. No, I've got to that bit yet. <laughs> could even be in there, you know, yeah. um, so equally be in there, I should say. So mm. I just like... It's it's a disappointment. I would like to see them take a film uh, that is as as female coded as that a little bit more seriously. Mm. That said, I'm I'm actually delighted that Gosling is in there because it's a fantastic performance, mm. and he was the one who had more buzz at the time. He is Kenuff, you're saying? He is Kenuff, <laughs> and also America Ferrera's in there. Let's not Fuck forget yeah. that. It is important. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I I I am not I'm I'm a little disappointed, but not worked up. Uh, the bigger snub for me, and and the more surprising snub for me, is all of us strangers being oh completely shut out. God, yes. Because I mean, it's bad enough that Andrew Scott wasn't considered at the BAFTAs, which right? is ridiculous. We talked about last week, but mm. also to, to for nothing mm. to be uh, given to that film in the, in the Oscar nominations is 
bonkers. And spoiler for the review review section. It's really fucking it's good. Really good, you know. So, I, so, so the that answer to the question: is, Did you miss me? Did you miss me? Did you miss me? Did you miss yes. me? Is yes. Is yes in this case. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, so uh, yeah, I I think it's. Um, I don't think it's a terrible list. I will be honest. I think what mm. is there is actually a pretty good list for the most part. This is not the most embarrassing Oscars no, so far we've ever seen. We'll see what happens with, with the winners. But right now, these are not an embarrassing list of nominees. But I would definitely have liked to see both Greta's uh, in there and Margot and... Yeah. Um, but then we, then we come to the question of if those people were in there, Who would you and I, I have to say, you know, some of the reaction to the Barbie thing, which of course got eight nominations and, mm-hmm. you know... I, I don't know if it's going to win anything. Gosling, I think, has a shot. No, I, I don't think does, no, That's Robert Downey Jr.'s. Yeah. I think production think? design. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. They have a good shot out. Uh, production design. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, 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 Billie Eilish is, I think. Billie Eilish is a best song. Okay, so it will win a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was, I, I was also really taken, and perhaps they, they did this knowing that they're probably not going to win. Ryan Gosling and America Ferreira both issued statements basically going, hey, what, dude, what the fuck? Mm. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because that could, you know, they 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 have votes on the line, right? And that's a very, very bold I, and brave thing to do. Unless, of course, you kind of think that you're not really going to win, in which like, case, I, I think it, it was it was nice of them to do it. Yep. I think mm. it was a good thing to do. And I think it was a very sweet thing for, for them to do in, in support of their their castmate and their director, I also am kind of with you. That was my initial reaction as well. It's like, yeah, yeah. they're not, I don't think they're risking very much because they are. neither of them are the front runner in their category. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually, as somebody else pointed out, I think in Gosling's case, there was a real risk of him becoming the villain of the piece again. Yes, again. because people were uh, because going, you're missing the point like, of the film. How dare mm. he be nominated when she's not nominated? Because patriarchy. And, so, and well, mm. it's, But it's not. It's because he gave a more <laughs> eye-catching performance. And I think people have absolutely underestimated how good Margot Robbie was and how important she is to that film. She's phenomenal. Mm. But um, but at the same time, that's not to say he isn't also incredible in that film. Mm. But also now he can stand up and sing It's Just Ken. <laughs> 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 so yeah, I, I look, I, I, but this is, this is far from the worst uh, yeah. selection we've ever seen. Um, I don't know that De Niro needed to be there for Flower Moon. Mm. Um, I think the Annette Bening nod for Nyad might be a little bit of a oh shit, you're Annette Benning. here, have a nomination. A little mm. bit. She's very good in the film, but, you know, um, I, like I say. In- <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's talk about who you might have, uh, who might make way, make way, make way, make way, make way. for some of the people that we're, we're incensed about. Mm. Uh, Amon, I know there's a couple of categories you want to talk about mm. uh, as well. well. We'll get to those. Load that rant. <laughs> Load it. Loading. Cock Loading. the gun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So let's say Margot Robbie is now nominated for Best Actress. Yeah. Mm. So who's she going to supplant? Annette Benning, Lily Gladstone, Sandra Huller for Anatomy of a Fall, Carrie Mulligan for Maestro, or Emma Stone for Poor Things? I mean, who, it's Benning so, for me. Benning? Yeah. Okay. It is. A, look, none of these are bad performances. No. They really aren't. And it's nothing against them. Um, but yeah, I think I feel like Annette Benning's there for a body of work, not just this film. I think Carrie Mulligan will be up every, you know, every other film she makes, really, because she's fantastic. So, um, so I, could, I would replace her... For, I would put put her in for one of those, and in fact, I, maybe I'd get rid of both of them and put in Greta Lee as well mm. for best. Uh, oh yeah, for yeah, past yeah. lives. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. a very good point. Uh, all right, so uh, I'm not going to go category by category, but I will go best director then. So Greta Gerwig, because who directed the hell out of Barbie, mm-hmm. it has to be said. Yeah. But this is a category of people who also directed the hell out of their mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Justin Triette for Anatomy of a Fall. Martin Scorsese for The Departed 2, uh, Christopher <laughs> Nolan for Oppenheimer, 
Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things and Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest. So who are you losing? So to I, I haven't seen The Zone of Interest oh. yet, but I did Glazer out massively in Killers of the Flower Moon. So well, you I sound like a Man United uh, fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, dro- I've dropped Marty. Sorry. <gasps> yeah. God, make way, <laughs> make way. <laughs> oh my word. Yeah. I, listen, I'm, I'm saying nothing. I'm saying yeah. nothing. Yeah. For either I, Celine Song I, or Greta. It's between Glazer and Scorsese for me. I have seen The Zone of Interest. I'm not as up on it as others. I do think it's very good, but I'm not sort of raving about it as others have over the past few months. So for me, I think it might be Glazer. I'd, uh, I'd move out. You're dropping Glazer. <laughs> <laughs> if he directs, if he directed the Blade film, it would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Glazer's Blade film is. <laughs> oh I'm not sure. He has, of course, directed. Scarlett Johansson in the movie, so that would be. You know, it could happen. That'd mm-hmm. be interesting. Yeah, she calls him up and goes, "You know, can you yeah. do? Can you? Why uh-huh. is she calling him up? But anyway, can you can, yeah. can you do Blade? <laughs> that'd be amazing." Um, so, what's your rant, Mon? Yeah, go on. It better be a rant after all this. Oh, it's a it's, rant. Is it by any chance connected to the best score category? It is connected you to shock the best me. score category. You know. I'm not a guy who likes to swear very often. Oh, is this a darn? In either real life or on <laughs> podcasts, but... Fiddlesticks! <laughs> Daniel Pemberton not being nominated for best score... Hold on, here it comes. ...is fucking oh! bullshit. Oh! Wash your mouth oh, down! You're on. disgraceful! Rain that shit How in. dare you! Right now. <laughs> If I had a, I've had a necklace, I would clutch it right now. This is. Look, there's a nun. She just. <laughs> that poor nun's head is just swiveled around 360 degrees. What have you done, uh, man? I, I just, I couldn't believe it. Um, because I can believe it. For me, the score for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is the best score of 2023. It's better than uh, the best score of 2023 was Liverpool seven minus nil. But okay, yes. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Glazer out. <laughs> and to not see it be represented here, to make it cut, just like, it, it, it boggled the mind. And it's not just about this score category for Across the Spider-Verse, it's about other categories as well. We were discussing it in the spoiler special. In the just world, this film will be up for Best Picture. The fact that it's not even up for Best Editing or Best Special, like, what are we doing here? This I is, know. It's, Best pic- genuinely best picture. Yeah. But this is this is why they kind of created best animated. Yeah, it, it was together wise. It was yeah. after it just, they created it after, you know, Beauty and the Beast got in yeah. there for best picture and they were worried it made them look unserious. Again, things that are coded for for females, for coded for children, they don't want to be in their big hoo-ha at the end mm. of the year. Ooh-ha. Not in that way. <laughs> it just annoys me. It's just it's this it's disrespectful of the medium. Um, and and we, I think they are missing out on the, the inventiveness and the innovation yeah. he shows. I mean, what would you was, knock out though? Well, so in? I can help you with this. I can help you with this because uh, my mum has an opinion on this because I got her <laughs> Oppenheimer because I thought she'd enjoy it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I saw her this week because I took her to Lamez so I could see it for the 13th time. And uh, she said, <laughs> Sorry, I said Did you enjoy <laughs> Oppenheimer? And she went, I turned it off. Ooh. I said, well, why did you turn up? She goes, the score was dreadful. No. And she <laughs> turned off Oppenheimer because she found the score oppressive no I so there you go so my mum says that frankly right. Ludwig should go <laughs> mum what do you say Ludwig is about to win one <laughs> my mum will be furious I'm not I'm uh, about so, uh, so, so in there we should say for people who don't know yeah. best original score uh, American Fiction who composed that Amon? Uh, Laura Cartman, Cartman who's had an incredible year 
between... Oh, from the MCU. I'm all, I'm all on. I'm, I'm on board. Yes, yes, really, yes, yes. fantastic score. Winner, 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 chicken dinner. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, I suspect that's, that's the, one. the one we're going to clatch on to. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon by the late... Great Robbie Robertson, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Oppenheimer by uh, Ludwig. And is it Earworm Granson? <laughs> and Poor Things is yeah. by Justin Justin Bendricks. Um, it's a Thank really, you. really good score that uh, Bella's theme in particular mirrors the journey that Bella goes on um, as a track. It's really clever. Okay. Um, but for me, it's John Williams. And, you know, How dare you? <laughs> get out. Doesn't he just get nominated by default as, as, I, as course, he should? This is what no, I'm saying. It's I like, think no, that's exactly what's happened. Yeah, no, it's like yeah, John I, Williams is up for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, John Williams is the goat. Let's not get it twisted. Um, and I'm a massive fan of his. But I'm not the one getting it twisted. <laughs> 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 but his score for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, while good is not among the best oh. scores that I heard that year. Daniel Pemberton's work on Across the Spider-Verse, it's an all-timer for me. Yep. It feels like yep. he puts his everything into mm. that and he's allowed to just express himself musically yep. in a way that he hasn't been able to fully do before the way he does on this film. You tell him I'm on. And so for it to <laughs> not be on this list is complete... Like, if it was on this list, I'd be you confident in again? winning. Um, so yes, I am going to swear, swear again because it's fucking bullshit. Oh, Fuck those guys! Oh. Oh. Can we get a C-bomb out of you? <laughs> oh, I'm not No, no, no. If that happened, I think my, all our heads would explode. Uh, do you know like what? scanners in here. I'm, I, much as it, it makes me get uncomfortable. Out. All of you get I'm with out. them on. I totally, I, much as I love John Williams, yeah. much as that yeah. score may have been the best part of that film, I, I no, it's it's not, it's not I, on, on a I, I'm with score. James's mum. You <laughs> oh, I you're coming for Ludwig. <laughs> I want to talk with voters who voted for that, uh, for John Williams and ask if they actually fully considered the work or they just voted for John Williams because you should call every member of the academy (laughs) and give them a stern talking to maybe we could do that when we're breaking into Dental's house later on (laughs) we can stop off at some academy members places I I have to agree with you completely on this Amon and I also I would say that Michael Cicchino's score for Society of the Snow is phenomenal and uh, is beautifully heart-rending without ever being sentimental Mm -hmm. and is melodic Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just a beautiful beautiful piece of work Mm -hmm. and I would have gone for that as well but yeah have the, the work that Daniel Pemberton put into this score is mm. next level mm-hmm. uh, and he is pushing the envelope yep. of what along with mm. you know along with people like um, uh, Mika Le- Levi who didn't get uh, nominated as well either for The yeah. Zone of Interest uh, mm. or, or Lubick Garanson these are people who are pushing the boundaries of what a film score is mm-hmm. and what it is comprised of mm-hmm. uh, and the stuff that he does in Across the Spider-Verse, I don't know whether they gave it short shrift because it was a sequel, they but then again, also, they nominated John Williams for a sequel. I don't understand. Also, the animation of it I, yeah. I think it's partly the animation. I think it's also partly that it is a bit modern for them. They're still an old <laughs> body of people. <laughs> and that there's, there's like... Hip hop beats. This, this what new is this? Young music, holding up their ear trumpets to the gramophone. I mean, I'm not. 
I'm 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 exaggerating, but not. Mm. But maybe you, you're by not amount, because you know? there are there, you know he draws from a wide array of influences. There's an orchestra in there, but there's also an orchestra mm. that has been recorded onto final and then scratched. remixed mm. and scratched yeah. into the music. Mm. That blows my mind. Yeah. There is wild experimentation with sounds and with the soundscape. There are I think in the last track start a band. Uh, there is something like three different different drum kits all playing the same thing but at a slightly different tonal uh, you know, frequencies it's it's just extraordinary there was a 20 minute video of Daniel Pemberton breaking down the final track of Spider-Verse that yeah. should have won him the Oscar right there mm-hmm. it, that video should have ended with someone just going fuck it here you go there's an Oscar <laughs> have the Oscar we might as well just skip that category now and it's it's uh, you know I'm going to swear as well it's flipping outrageous. Steady on, Chris. Jesus. <laughs> that uh, that he has been overlooked. And uh, hey. along with the one-two punch of Wonka, none of Wonka's songs making it, I, well, I'm I mean, just... Well, I mean, as is traditional, the original song category is... It's just bilge. Yeah, it's not all bilge. <laughs> bilge. There's a couple of good songs in there. I'm thrilled to see I'm Just Ken. Uh, I, and the winner, What Was I Made For, is a lovely song. Um, <laughs> yes, Diane Warren. Diane Warren, God bless her, now has 15 Oscar nominations and, also, and not a single winner. Win. We get to well. say the Oscar-nominated Flaming Hot, which is something I think we all will be looking forward to. I mean, you know, the Oscar-winning, what was it, Hard Out Here for a Pimp won the Oscar? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like, That's right. I mean, didn't Norbert win an Oscar? Like, you can... Norbert, uh, it did. yes, it did, it did indeed win an Oscar. Win an Oscar. Yeah. yeah, deservedly yeah. so. Best, best <laughs> film, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure. The two tracks I'm upset. Uh, I'm not in the running camp for best song. Isn't home. Hustle camp and Flow is isn't home way. from theater Hustle camp, which ends that movie on such a high. I remember listening to that track like 20 times yeah. coming out of the cinema. Which track uh, is Camp isn't home camp from isn't theater home camp. From oh, from camp. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But is it kind of? It's amazing. Um, and then the other one, only because I would have loved to have seen him do it live. Is Peaches from Super Mario Bros. by mm. Jack Black. See, that would have been an instantly iconic live performance. We all know it, and the, we're not going to have a chance to have it now, and that sucks. That's the thing, because I don't think this is that great a song. It's not. It's just it's a but Jack Black seen it live, and, and this should never yeah. be taken into consideration, of yeah. course. But maybe but we, it should. But it should be, because we have a chance, right? Where Ryan Gosling, I don't know, they might do that thing where they get some singer to do all the songs in a, no, in a, in a medley. No, don't Ryan Gosling, you got it. But it might be Ryan Gosling on the night singing and hopefully singing the way he does in Barbie and not the way he does in La La Land. (laughs) 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 You know, and they could have had it's like Jim Bowen. Oh, let's take a look at what you could have won. won. You could have won Jack Black singing Peaches. Oh, you could have won a speedboat. You could have won Timothy Chalamet singing, you know, about chocolate or Wonka oh, with an all-star cast behind I mean, him. here oh. they are complaining that their ratings keep dropping. And I know. they reject the chance to have Timothy Chalamet sing about chocolate. Yeah. Come chocolate. on, people. And, and the chocolate. chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Put your hand into your chocolate. I tell you, it was not there. Daniel Pemberton's fucking Oscar, that's what. Anyway, all right, anything else? Can we talk about dinosaurs? Yes, please. Always. Because the Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park franchise is returning. David Kep is writing yes. the checks notes. 15th installment in the franchise. <laughs> Uh, which, dinosaurs. you know, as David Kep was responsible for writing the greatest of all Jurassic Park movies, The Lost World, Code on Jurassic Park. <laughs> we can all be pretty fucking psyched about that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, David Kep is very good. But um, yeah, more dinosaurs. He also wrote the first one. For anyone confused, <laughs> he did very much script the first one. Um, I mean, 
Universal has Jurassic Park franchise makes another film. Arguably isn't news so much as an update, but nevertheless, good stuff. Who doesn't yeah. like a dinosaur? I love a dinosaur. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's going to be a move away from the Jurassic World characters and story, apparently. Yes. All new people, all new dinosaurs. All new dino fodder. I mean, yeah, I, I'm excited. David Kep is he's you know one of the best writers in Hollywood. He's having a bit of a moment at the moment. Mm. Uh, he's also writing a film called Black Bag for uh, Steven Soderbergh, which will star Michael Fassbender and Kate Blanchett. Yeah. And if you wonder why I'm saying that, it's because we discussed it on last week's live show, and then I cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> so, just reiterating. I'm oh, yeah. gonna need a little more convincing on this Jurassic thing. Not to say that David Kirk isn't skilled, but it's been a while since I've really fully loved a Jurassic movie. Um, the recent... Uh, but again, they're it. moving away from I, those characters I in that know. story. Maybe this is the time to introduce some new dinosaurs. My niece's favourite, she's an expert, she's three, um, <laughs> is Bambi Raptor. Okay. Which I initially thought was a joke about a you know dinosaur crossed with who had a deer or something, mm. but is an actual real dinosaur. So if you imagine basically a velociraptor that's halfway through turning into a bird, <laughs> that's a Bambi Raptor. Okay. Cool. So like, let's get into some weird shit no. like that. Is See, what I'm saying. If she was writing the movie, I'd be more excited. But... <laughs> Honestly, I mean, she could do a very good job. She's a very bright sure. three-year-old. Some people might say I couldn't have done worse than the last one, but oh, I, I, wow. I would not throw. My, I would not add my voice to that throng. Do Obviously. any of you care at all about Tron Aries? No, no. I'm, trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Gillian Anderson's now in it, so that at least oh, I mean, slightly more excited. That's going to help me care about it. You had honest. a semblance of. Uh, curiosity, and now you have a smidgen of my attention. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, yeah. a tiny bit. So this is, yeah, this is, this is going to be. So Jared Leto is playing Ares, and he's going to oh, be crossing yeah. over from Anime the game again. world <laughs> yeah. to the real world. <laughs> and Gillian Anderson will be in it, doing something, okay. being fabulous. Let's be honest. So. And it's the director of Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, Joachim Ronning. Mm. Yes, and of course, Pirates of the Caribbean Five, which is called. Salazar? Salazar's Revenge. Salazar's Revenge. Salazar's Revenge and or... We've done this in the podcast before, but I love to do it every single is time. It, it comes is it, it's not Dead Man's Chest. It's, no, it's, it's, too... it's not Stranger Times. Is it Stranger Times? No, it's It's, 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 I don't know. Anyone? Anyone? I'm going to be really annoyed when I hear it. What is it? Dead Men Tell No Tales. Dead Men Tell No Tales. I knew there were dead men in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, No, not excited about that in the least, but I look forward to winning Best Picture two years (laughs) from now. Really good people in it, like Jodie Turner-Smith, Greta Lee, Evan Peters, Mm. Cameron Monaghan, and Sarah Dejarnat. There was a a drop up there at the moment. I remember enjoying uh, Maleficent 2 as well. Uh, Doug Lyman is boycotting the premiere of his own movie. What? what? Uh, Roadhouse. So he has remade oh, Roadhouse because yeah. pain don't hurt. Is, is he boycotting it because Sam Elliott's not in it? <laughs> uh, he is boycotting it because he is unhappy with Prime Video putting it straight to Prime Video and not giving it a theatrical release. Okay. And he has issued a statement which is pretty much going, going just him you. waving his fist at them. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say, I'm kind of with him on this. That that, that sucks. But uh, Jake Gyllenhaal stars in it. In the uh, I, I don't know whether it was a direct remake. So I'm not sure whether he's playing Dalton, but yeah, I su- I yeah, he's, that uh, he's ripped. He is ripped, believe, yeah. ripped, ripped. Mm. I assume that there was an agreement in place that they're just ignoring. But, but this was there. before the Amazon bought the studio that made the yeah, film. I so there's see. complications. Because Mean there. Girls, the musical, was supposed to go straight to Paramount Plus, and then mm. because it tested very, very well. 
they got mm. theatrical release. Yes. So this has gone the other way. Doing yeah. gangbusters. Yeah. yeah. And I have to say, like, a Jake Gyllenhaal starring, you know, Roadhouse. Okay, we're not talking $500 million worldwide mm. gross here, but we're talking, you know, it would have done all right. Mm. Okay? Yeah. Shall we discuss something that is fresh and new and has never been discussed on the podcast before? Oh, yes, please. Yeah. Reacher. <laughs> well, uh, persuade me, Chris. Persuade me. <laughs> so uh, we have known for a couple of weeks now that uh, not only are they moving ahead with season three of Reacher on Prime Video once again, uh, but they're actually making it. They're making it right now. They didn't even wait for season two's corpse to become cold. <laughs> they just moved on, just like Jack Reacher himself That's would right. do. That's it. Yeah. He would and they approve. moved on to book three. I interviewed Lee Child in November for the magazine. And he was like, and I was like trying to get him to tell me what it was, basically by using <laughs> age-old journalistic practices designed to unlock uh, a tight-lipped. Go on, will you, will you, please, you please tell me what it will. is. I'll be your best friend, but he was unmoved. He was <gasps> unmoved by such promises. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, Alan Richardson, who, which is the name of the actor that Jack Reacher is pretending to yeah. be in real life, <laughs> uh, this week on Instagram. Uh, basically confirmed what it is and they are shooting Persuader. Yeah. Persuader. Persuader. Which of book seven, book? yes, yeah. in Lee Child's series and one of my faves, well, one of my top five. It's one of the ones where it breaks the regular formula. format. It does, it? Yes. it does something different because he goes undercover. Is it the DEA he's working with? Well, you've just spoiled the twist of the first chapter, but yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, anyway, he goes Thanks undercover to, to bring down like this drug dealer. That's the, uh, which is, again, it's yes. like you said, like we've had the one like Visitor where he's, mm. Searching for serial killer, and yes. this is him bringing down a drug kingpin. Yes, and yeah. here now he's searching for the hero inside himself. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes no, this is great. This is set in Maine. Uh, Reacher gets involved. Oh, I've with... been to Maine. You have been to mm. Maine, where Stephen King lives. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, and Reacher gets involved. Yes, he's trying to take down a a, a drug runner, uh, and it's such a good book. It's told in the first person. It's one of those. So uh, it's a return to the lone wolf. Reacher, which I'm glad about mm -hmm. because I haven't yeah. finished season two yet. I'm it's enjoying good. it. It's good. But yeah. I think they pulled the trigger on the special investigators yeah. too soon. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I agree. 100%. Ha having said that, I mean, it, it was a lot of fun. I went out for uh, I went out for dinner with a few friends uh, the other week and dinner swiftly devolved into three of us persuading the fourth person at the table that she needed to immediately drop everything, including <laughs> us, and uh, read and watch Reacher because yeah. she hadn't read any, <gasps> she hadn't seen the film. Yeah. So jealous. Um, so she, she, I mean, she has now finished book one and I believe is on series one. But, you know, how, how do these people live with themselves, know. you know? I, I, it was important, though. It was important for us that we help her in that time of need. I that have time a PowerPoint being, prepared. Not familiar <laughs> with Reacher. Uh, Amon, where do you stand on, on Jack Reacher? This is very, very interesting because I'm in the room with three huge Reacher fans and yet for both Reacher season one and Reacher season two, this guy has written the review. <laughs> so I don't know how that's happened, um, especially as I have not read any of the books. I think it was um, when we all turned in five-star reviews before yeah. seeing the single episode. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. Uh, I, gave, I gave season one three stars, I gave season two four stars. Which is really, weird because season one is demonstrably better than season two, but carry on. I think, it, I mean, you're, you're saying that they pulled the trigger on the special investigators. Yes, very I, much so. I think that that is one of the reasons why the second season is better. No, you've got to earn it. You've mm. got to earn it. It's the same thing the DCEU had to learn about team-up stuff. You need mm. to earn this shit. And the fact is, it had that, that 
you know, Battle Like a Trouble works mm. so well because it shakes up this established formula and does something different. Mm. And bringing it in as a second one, it's just, it was whack. Like, I don't know what. No, it's thinking. not whack. It's not whack. No, it was come on. on. It was a no, lot of as fun. As a decision, as a creative yeah. decision, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. Don't get me wrong. I thought it was a great series. No, it, I thought mm. there is a fucking A grade Terminator 2 joke in there that oh, made me yeah. chuckle for ages. <laughs> also, the great. kaiju joke was oh, yeah. Yeah, some jokes. really funny shit. Yeah. But, but I just thought, I thought I would love to have seen that season exactly as it was, but as season four. Not a season two. Mm. Mm. I, yeah, I, I think I understand why they did it. And they did it because one of the appeals of Reacher season one, hang on a second, is this an episode of the Pilot TV podcast? <laughs> <Not> to say. <laughs> it might just be. <laughs> Good app. I like the show. It's so much better than we're on it, don't you think? Uh, anyway, one of the reasons why Reacher season one really, really worked uh, it adapted the first book, Killing Floor, and it really paid attention to that central relationship or central relationships between Reacher and Finley yep. and and mm-hmm. Roscoe, and and it brought in Neagley, <laughs> Neagley, the G is by, not silent, uh, Maria Sten. Yeah, the G is not silent. It's Neagley, not Neely. Jesus Christ, I love the show, but every time Reacher says Neely, I go Neely at the screen, and it's 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 really it's upsetting me now. It's becoming a thing. Anyway, and because the man pretending to be called Alan Richardson is so good as Jack Reacher, mm-hmm. you know, he bounces off these people really, really well, and I can see that they they probably thought we should do that again, but with more people. Yeah. But my concern is that it becomes. Reacher and team show mm. and it should always be Reacher with occasional but guest stars I think part of the reason is because they've made some subtle changes to the character and the big one being that he's much more loquacious than obviously he is in the novels he because we to. don't have his internal yeah. voice so he speaks a lot more and I think his interaction with other characters is more fulfilling in the show than it is in the books mm. because we don't live inside Reacher's head so mm. maybe they just were you know they and thought you needed that I think they've done a good job of like when when everybody is in the room he says very little like you saw those scenes of the flashbacks mm. the special investigators and he's almost always just sitting at his desk quite mm-hmm. happy that they're all talking to each other he doesn't speak until he, he needs to he doesn't speak yeah. until he needs to so I think they've kept that but James is right we don't have yeah. an internal monologue so we need mm. some like, it, it would be this, it's just Reacher says fucking tons just doesn't have the same ring to it does it it's yeah. true yeah well we're not quite done with movie news yet because we did lose the legendary director Norman Jewison who passed away this week. And I want to say a few words before before that about David M. Gay, who was uh, Stephen in George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead, one of my favourite films of all time. Uh, and he is absolutely incredible in that film as the, the character called Flyboy. He is so good in that film. If you haven't seen Romero's Dawn of the Dead, I strongly urge you to seek it out. His career, either side of that, perhaps wasn't that brilliant, but... If you have Dawn of the Dead on your CV, as far as I'm concerned, you're good in my book. And I was very, very, very sad to hear of his of his death, indeed. But yes, but Norman Jewison. Norman Jewison. Yeah. Uh, incredible filmmaker. Uh, Oscar nominated for just for Best Director, for In the Heat of the Night, for Fiddler on the Roof, for Moonstruck. Fucking incredible film. Um, he, was all, he also had a real uh, talent for getting everyone he worked with you know, awards glory. He he had he was one of those directors who has basically, I, th- I feel like, a film in almost every genre. He made the original Thomas Crown Affair, yep. Jesus Christ Superstar, Rollerball, yep. Fist, oh Agnes God. of God, Other People's yep. Money, The Hurricane. Yep. I mean, The Cincinnati Kid, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. I, I don't know. He, he seems to have covered the entire gamut of possible films, um, which is pretty amazing. And... Um, 
And yet, even the films where he didn't he didn't win Best Director, but his films won Best Picture, for example, I think In the Heat of the Night didn't it won win Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So um so yeah, a lot of a lot of tributes to him from sort of old Hollywood folk. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of actors, especially who know that they owe their Oscar to their work with him. And um, he will be hugely missed. He was 97, 97. years old. I know, heck Jeez. of a thing. That's a good innings. It's a very, very good innings. He hadn't directed a film since the the statement in 2003, mm. which is what, 20 years ago, I yeah. guess. Uh, so he was in his late 70s. Uh, yeah, but my God, what a director. What an impact on cinema history. Uh, you know, just... <laughs> I, I think my favorite of his is probably the Thomas Crown Affair, although I do mm. love Rollerball as well. And I have a Moonstruck soft spot. Is amazing. I'm, yeah, yeah, Moonstruck's great as well. He directed that really lovely um, rom-com with Marissa Tomei and Robert Downey Jr., mm. in which Aunt Meg is together with Tony Stark, um, Only You, which is really, yeah. really it's lovely a cute little one, film. Actually, that, yeah, yeah. Um, but he directed uh, kind of one of the early oddities of Sly Stallone's career, which is Fist. Mm. Uh, and that's a, that's a really good film. But yeah, it's he he what a career. What an incredible career he had. He really did. A uh, real, real loss. Ninety-seven years old. The legendary Norman Jewison, who passed away this week. We have two more uh tranches of guests. Am I using that phrase in the right way? Probably not. Uh but we have Paul Giamatti and Alexander Payne, or we have Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel. Who oh. do you want? It's a toughie. It's a it toughie. Tuffy. Let, let, let's, I mean, save, just... let's save. Let's save. Let's save Andrew and Paul for last. Okay. So after we've pain. discussed it. Okay. So you want to you want to gush over them and then. So instead of Andrew yeah. and Paul, you want Alexander and Paul. It's all getting very confusing. Yes. So, uh, too many Pauls. Too many Pauls. Uh, all right. Well, let's have the holdovers because that's already out in cinemas. Came yeah. out last week, but mm-hmm. obviously it was a live show, so we didn't have any pre-recorded guests. So uh, Alexander Payne and Paul Giamatti teamed up in 2004 on Sideways. They made something of an instant classic and then promptly spent 20 years trying to work together again. And thankfully they have done so on the holdovers, which if you haven't already seen it, stop listening to this immediately. Go watch Reacher Season 2. And then once that's finished... Hey. Then go watch the holdovers and then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast. It is absolutely incredible. And Paul Giamatti stars as a, I said college professor, you caught, you pulled me up in this. It's not a college, it's a... Fancy public school. Fancy public school teacher. As in, as in private school. As in private school. This in, the in America, yeah. in, in near Boston, uh, who is stranded kind of through choice, kind of also not, uh, with a young student and the school cook. You and see, everyone else has departed for the <laughs> yeah, departed. Departed. Yes. He's the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. Uh, and just speaking of nominations, Paul Giamatti got out a Best Actor nomination this week and, you know, is being tipped as, the, if it's if it's not going to be Killian Murphy, yeah. it may well be it Paul Giamatti. Be. And I think he deserves it because he's phenomenal in this film. Dave I enjoy Randolph was nominated for Best Supporting Actress mm. and uh, richly deserved as well. She's great in it uh, also. Anyway, it's a phenomenal film and I want these guys to make movies together forever now, quite frankly, because if they're as good as Sideways and a Holdovers, then we're in for a treat. And I was in for a treat when I sat down with them. See that? Good segue, huh? <laughs> uh, I was in for a treat when I sat down with them in a London hotel room last week, in fact, and we had a good old natter about, well, just movies generally, including horror films. Mm. Uh, and Evil Dead too, because Paul Giamatti has a podcast called Chinwag, mm-hmm. which is great. And recently he had Bruce Campbell on as a oh, guest. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we talked a little bit about that. So here we go. Paul Giamatti and Alexander Payne, do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Ember podcast by the director and the star of The Holdovers, Alexander Payne, Paul Giamatti. How are you both? Splendid. 
Happy gig, to gig. be here. Yes. Excellent, excellent. We just started off before I pressed record, uh, talking about uh, Paul's podcast, oh, Chinwag, thanks. and uh, recent guest, Bruce Campbell, my yes. my hero, mm-hmm. Bruce Campbell, uh, mm-hmm. and the Evil Dead movies. And we've been catching up. Alexander, you haven't seen the Evil Dead, but... I I, uh, I've seen, I would uh, recommend Evil Dead, Evil Dead I saw it in the yeah. theater the week it came out. Oh wow! I remember seeing it in the theater too. That's awesome. oh. at the Chinese theater. Oh nice, <laughs> perfect, perfect. So right in the sweet spot. Yeah, for you guys. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, there's not really a connection between the Evil Dead movies and the holdovers. <laughs> well, I'm guessing we can think of some. Although it is about could. someone being stuck in a single location going slowly crazy, That's I guess. That's true, yeah. So, like repulsion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so do you see this one day maybe ending up in the horror section uh, as well? I don't know. A little bit of a Quasimodo <laughs> character in it, aren't I? A little bit of something. You know. A little bit. A little bit. It's yeah. a terrific, a terrific film. And uh, we should say we're, we're doing this in the first couple of weeks of January. Uh, I'm Today's sure you guys the 16th. Have, January, thank you, because I have no idea what day okay. it is. I'm still catching up on, I believe, 2024? Yes, sir. Uh, okay, yep. thank you very much indeed. Uh, and this is a film that is set in and around Christmas. A lot of it takes place after Christmas, but yeah. there's been a bit of a hullabaloo over here about the fact that it's opening in January. So either it's really belatedly a Christmas movie or it's really, really early for next Christmas. Uh, <laughs> you have to talk to the distributor on that yeah, one. totally. They, they made some, that choice. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting one. But but, <laughs> but Christmas is obviously such a huge part of the film. Uh, Alexander, I wanted to ask you what what the um, the thinking was behind that, This the, the idea of, of Christmas as a change there agent. There was no calculation behind it. It simply was a part of the story that I mean, I even thought of it more as just a winter movie. Mm. Okay. But uh, no, I I, it, it, I never questioned it or dissected like why. It's just I thought, oh, here's a good premise for a movie. The boys who have nowhere to go, stuck at a at a boarding school and the teacher who minds them. And uh, the fact of it's becoming a, in big italics, Christmas movie didn't really strike me until later. Mm. I'm happy that people see it that way. That's very lovely. And if it has... If it achieves some sort of perennial appeal, well, that would be lovely. Absolutely, I'm guessing you shot it in the middle of summer as well. Which, mm-hmm. which, which no, no, we shot it in the in dead winter in January, <laughs> January, oh, wow. February, okay. March yeah, of no, so uh, 2022. Movie, it's real cold and real snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh my word! So how was that for you? Fantastic. Yeah. No, because it's all atmosphere. It does nothing. It's but good give to get you... weather in film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Real, Wind, real snow, rain. Yeah. Breath. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Breath. Real cold. The dampness. Yeah. Not, all of did, it. Not do Digital felt breath, it real breath. No, it was fantastic. And you know, some of those places we shot in old places, you could hear the the, the radiators expanding yep. and cracking and banging because it was like <laughs> so. It was all contributing to the feel of the movie. No, it was it was essential that it actually be real snow and winter like that. In a weird way, talking about, about horror, horror and uh, horror influences, there was uh, honestly I felt a little bit of The Shining. As well, I've heard that before. Oh, I've heard that. That's funny. Well, people, three people stuck in a large building. <laughs> oh, in a, a large family, em- empty and a kind building. Of like, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. That's very that's, funny. Well, it's a moment as well, Paul, where your character Paul goes on a tour of the school with his with his torch. Uh-huh. 
and there's a there's a kind of a tracking shot along the corridor, uh-huh. which which reminded me a little bit of of, of that moment where, where Jack that. does that. I'm gonna find a dead yeah. woman in the bathtub, and I'm gonna have like a little <laughs> yeah. necrophilic. Do experience. not go into room two three seven. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I hadn't heard that. That's very funny. I hadn't heard that. I go like back that. and rewatch the film with that lens. Oh and, sure, absolutely. That's a very good. Idea. Yeah, all right. Wouldn't that yeah. be an interesting double bill? That's a really Hold funny idea. The holdovers in the shining. It's yeah. a great idea. I love it. I love it. Make it happen. Make yeah. it happen. Um, obviously, you guys have worked before, and uh, I, I've read that you've been trying to work with Paul for a long time since. Obviously, sideways. not trying hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not that hard. Yeah. From yeah. your point of view, Paul, how hard was Alexander trying to work with you? Were well, calls no, made? Were conversations listen, no, had? No, we, we tried to do. We tried to downsizing was something you wanted, and that yeah. you know, no. I mean, you were always whenever we'd see pop up and say you wanted to do something. So I knew something was going to happen. Maybe someday. Yeah. I'm. I'm always yeah. fascinated by uh, partnerships like this. You know, sometimes you'll have. Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, you'll have uh-huh. John Wayne and John Ford, Hitchcock and, and Jimmy Stewart. Kurosawa and Mafume. Absolutely. Mafume Kurt Russell like and that. John Carpenter, you, you know, go. people who Antonioni work together again and Monica again. Vitti. That's exactly there we go. It. I mean, again and again and again, but you have had this this partnership interrupted by two decades. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Hopefully. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it's not the end of the partnership, but... Uh, For a geologist, it would have happened pretty quickly. <laughs> would have done, yeah. <laughs> In a blink of an eye. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, how different was that working relationship from the end of Sideways? I don't think so either of us thinks it was very different at all. No, uh-huh. not particularly at all. If anything, it was just it was just better. It was even smoother. In some ways. In what way? Well, I think I was less nervous and I was a lot less nervous. I was nervous doing sideways at first and then I calmed down pretty pretty quickly. But I, I think I'm I think I hope I'm a bit of a better actor. I think I'm a little bit more polished maybe than I was then. So, but also it just, we knew each other better. We, we, it was even, it was even less of a shorthand necessary. I mean, it was just like, you know. It's a no hand. Yeah. There's nothing going, there's no, no need to, yeah. So it just felt even smoother and more fun and everything felt. And I have to say. Same, but better, enhanced. And all the sweeter. Yeah. Because of its absence, because we hadn't worked for, it had together for so much. Like, oh, thank God. Oh, mm. so nice. <laughs> That's exactly what it was like. It's true. <laughs> How do you direct Paul Giamatti? And has that changed? I say action. Wow. <laughs> and then, and then but occasionally, yeah, you'll say eh, a little bit more. And it, it's with the best actors, you, you generally have to resort to one of only four directions. Faster, slower, louder, softer. Right. <laughs> yep. Which are which are great directions. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. Which is your favorite of those? Of those? Of those, yeah. Um, which you'd like to hear most most. Uh probably softer, I like. A little bit. Bring it down a little bit. I bring like. it down a little bit. Yes. Okay. Faster is the one I don't like. The fastest one I like the least, but but why? I but I'll do it because I'm often just like, well, now I'm just talking fast. Uh-huh. Now why am I talking so fast? But it's but it's generally the the most important and best one actually just move it along, and so that's probably why I don't like to hear it because I know I'm dragging my ass, and so <laughs> you, and the director's generally right 
then it should probably be faster. But just oftentimes you just feel like, well, now I'm just talking faster. Why am I talking faster? When you watch those, like the Howard Hawks movies uh-huh. that we're talking, what do you yeah. think? What do you think of those? Are they going too fast? No, they're not going too it's fast. It's real Friday. No, they're not going too fast. They're going, the, the pace is great and it's necessary, you know, and it's, and it's, so no, I don't think that they're Sometimes they're fast. a little too fast for me. Really? I don't really, have to, I, I miss things. I feel things. like you're absorbing it. Hmm. Watch, no, watch them with the subtitles like on. That might, that might well, Hamilton went by I, I, I too fast. Like, Hamilton. Yeah, I saw the mu- music. Well, that one was too fast. It's like, what, 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 yeah, what no, what's I, happening? What? Yeah, I was catching the gist of it vaguely most of the time and nothing specific. <laughs> <laughs> I really was. Well, imagine if they talk slowly, it would be, uh, it's two and a half hours as it is. That's true. So, um, Take forever. They've yeah. got to get a move on. People have got to get home. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> true. Like, this is it. Yeah. People have got cows waiting, there's tubes and all sorts of, the, of things to catch. But um, what, what sort of conversations did you have about this movie beforehand? Because I'm, I'm, imagining a lot of the conversations before Paul gets on set and you say softer, louder, faster, faster slower. slower. I mean, I think part of the pleasure is we don't have a whole lot of comfort. I mean, we, we would read the script a bunch of times and ask right. questions if we felt we, we needed to. And also it's just nice. I like to read it over and over and over and over again. And so it's a real pleasure to be able to do it with the other actors there too. I don't feel like we have huge intense conversations about character and stuff. I don't feel like we did. It's a, that's oh. part of the pleasure is that I don't feel like I need to actually very much. I don't love to talk a lot about it. Uh, that's me as an actor and I appreciate being around actors who do like to talk about it because they'll often raise something I'll go oh I hadn't thought of that uh-huh. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, it's true that's good no it is so I like being around actors who like to talk about it I personally don't like to talk about it a lot and I don't know Before whether you that's do the just I don't know whether you do or not whether no. you like to talk to yeah I don't sense that you do so that works for me that we actually don't have a whole lot of conversation about it wow you know? okay yeah. is that, has that always been the case for you I think so. I I hope that simply when cast, that actor will be that person. And I also think anything, most of what I have to say about a character is somehow woven into the screenplay. Right. And that's true with the scripts that you, you have. But also, I think part of what happens is that you cast the right people, but you also trust them. So I feel the sense of trust I get already doesn't necessitate my needing to talk about it very much. You know, he's trusting me that I'm yeah. going to, and the that worst thing do. an actor, I'm sorry, the worst thing a director can do. One of the worst things is talk an actor to death. Yes. A lot of younger actors just talk too damn much to their actors. <laughs> yeah. When, no, when it's all true. they should be saying is please hit your mark and recite yeah. your dialogue. I think that there's a certain extent to which they feel it's their job to sit there and give you direction. And it's not necessarily the case. If it ain't know? broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Absolutely. But you're but the other but all that said, I have sometimes I feel like there have been some actors in the two movies that needed to talk a little bit more and you're able to do that. And that's a rare talent to be able to do both things or whatever the person needs. You're while, able to while do While looking it. at my watch. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, you, do, you don't seem to be looking at your watch. You do it surreptitiously. Yeah. But, but you are able to do those, those things if it's needed. And that's not necessarily always the case. I remember once speaking to Guillermo del Toro and he, was, he told me that he thought a director should take acting lessons. Yes. Because every actor is different. Mm-hmm. Every actor reacts in a different way. Every actor prepares in a different way. Every actor has a different method, of course. Uh, and so having that insight into how an actor works is hugely yeah, important. you don't necessarily have to, have to take acting lessons. You can be sort of an armchair amateur actor like me. You mm-hmm. know, I sort of 
internally act out everything they do anyway. But I, I understand the point and it's mm-hmm. often said, but I also think the opposite is true that I think actors should study mm-hmm. directing mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah. they know, yeah. realize what pains in the ass they are. <laughs> and like, we just, we just help a brother Very out. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true because yeah. it, it's the direction. Oh, like Kazan, you've got to, you know, study each individual actor so you know how what buttons to push inside <laughs> of him or her. But the opposite is true. And I think uh, actors should study the director of that particular film so you know what movie is being made. Uh-huh. And you're and you're gonna be inside that movie. Absolutely. One of my favorite scenes in the film is, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a, a, a scene where, where Paul and Angus go to see a film. Uh-huh. But I was very uh, taken by the choice of film. Uh-huh. Little Big Man. Uh-huh. Yes. Mr. Payne. I went on, I had a scene in the movie uh, that takes place at a cinema. So I went online to look up what movies were in the cinemas in 1970, Christmas time, and there was Little Big Man, a movie I very much admired and saw about four times. Oh, really? When I was nine years old. Uh, so we used that one. Okay. Uh, I thought maybe it was a, a pointer towards the fact that you might want to do a Western next. They're not connected. Okay. Interesting. Because I, I had George Clooney on this very podcast, and he was telling me that he will be doing a Western with you at some point. I'm so glad he's <laughs> and not, he's saying that. Because it is true that David Hemmingson and I, the yeah. guy who wrote The Holdovers, are conceiving a Western. Yeah. And are thinking about having a, and I say I can say this because he and I are the same age, an aging mm-hmm. uh, character, uh, someone in his 60s as the lead. And yes, Mr. Clooney would be very good for it. Wow. There you go. Will I get to be in that? Yes. Am I going to play the barkeep? We'll figure out something better. Okay. Toothless. Toothless old prospector. I'd love that. Oh my God. I think you have a toothless old prospector in you. And oh, when you, for I mean, sure. Are you kidding way. me? Absolutely, yeah. man. I got a toothless old prospector in me. I saw a clip of you at a recent uh, awards show where um, someone asked you which genre you haven't done yet. And you said horror. I haven't done enough horror. Yeah. 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 I produce, I helped produce a horror movie just so I could be in it mostly, <laughs> but with the guy who directed Bubba Hotep. Um, don't conquer, don't conquer, yeah. cause he and I are always talking about doing a detective yes. story oh, together. That's really but a thing. But like as to you do. go in your reading, put your antennae out both for a detective story and, 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 horror. and horror. Okay, great. All right, good. I will look, I will do look for Do you watch horror. much contemporary horror? No, not as much. I mean, the, I, I, was, I was recommending Barbarian to you, which is right. probably which I think not I've the seen. last one I saw, but, but, um. I mean, did you see Smile? Did you see It? it I haven't seen and Smile It yet. Follows. And I the, saw It Follows. Yeah, I, li- I liked all of those. Um, I haven't seen Smile. Smile, did you see Smile? I liked it. Yeah, I heard it's really good. The trouble with the movies is, I mean, they're, they're, they can be spectacularly well-conceived and acted and horrific. The trouble is the ending. Yep. Because you have to top yourself. Well, there's a pressure that the climax must also somehow explain why this weird thing has been happening. And that's too much dramatic pressure. Like the, 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 the the doors rattle. You have to be topping yourself and you have to have an explanation. Yeah. So I admire ones that don't worry about that. And don't, you know, maybe the best ending is still Rosemary's baby. I was just about to say Rosemary's baby does not, is probably the best example of that. And uh, continuing that that it's Mm going to go on. Yep. Also the omen, that original, the omen omen is pretty darn good. Yeah. 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 
Are you guys talking yourselves into making a horror text? Well, I would totally love to make a horror movie. Yeah. That would be great. We're trying to troubleshoot the ending a little bit here. (laughs) (laughs) No, even even like Hereditary is so magnificent and so well done. And then, but I remember being a little let down by the ending. Me me too. I was let down by the ending of it too. Yeah. I I agree. But that happens a lot. But I didn't feel like Barbarian did that. For some reason, I felt like Barbarian ended, stuck the landing pretty well. Huh. Yeah. I'll revisit that. Yeah, I really did think, oh, all right, that worked out pretty well. Have you seen The Mist? It is a genuinely horrific ending. You yeah, should see that. Shyamalan? It's, no, it's um, Frank, Frank Darabont. Yeah. Oh, Darabont, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, right. it's really the end of that movie. I've, I've rarely been in a theater. I saw it in a sort of Saturday night crowd in Brooklyn, noisy, rowdy crowd. I've never heard a, a theater so silenced as they were by the end of that movie. Wow, oh, it's extraordinary. It's a, yeah, it is genuinely horrific. Because the, uh, the Stephen King novella, on which it's based, ends literally with the word hope and a note of hope. I asked Frank why he ended the mist to where he does. He went not, to, I just wanted to strip all hope away. It is away. not hopeful. <laughs> it is, not it is hopeful. a dark, dark movie. Yeah. yeah. Was it's it really popular? I, not hugely. No. No. Do you, no. you think the horrific ending stunted its popularity? I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Even for a horror movie, I'm kind of amazed they let him end that movie that way. <laughs> it's really it's really amazing, the end of that movie. I wonder if the ending... I don't know. It's an interesting movie. You should see it. The whole thing is... It's like a play, a little bit. It's yeah. all shot in one location. It's one location. It's part of a bunch yeah, of characters really going interesting mad. movie. Yeah. I really like that movie. Are they in a garage or something? Supermarket. A supermarket. Yeah. They're in a supermarket okay, the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's really great. It's really great. Uh, again, nice companion piece, The Holdovers. <laughs> and we bring it back. We bring it back. I love the idea of Podcasting that. pros, Paul. What can yeah, we say? What it, can we it. say? <laughs> yep, very uh, good. On that note, Alexander Payne, Paul Giamatti. Thanks for a good Absolutely. discussion. That was awesome. Thank this you very much. Indeed. Highly yeah. enjoyable. Yeah. Thank you. All right, that was Alexander Payne and Paul Giamatti. And oh my God, I love talking to those guys. And I really, really do hope they make a horror film uh, at <laughs> some point. Uh, if they haven't already, that is. Uh, anyway, let's move on now to the movie reviews section. Only three films to talk about this week. Uh, and we're going to start with All of Us Strangers. We start with All of Us Strangers? Yeah. All right. All of Us Strangers. Jimbo, this is the return of the brilliant British director Andrew Haig. And he has brought Andrew Scott, another Andrew, and Paul Meskel with him. Tell us all. Uh, this is a really difficult film to categorise. I should say this is based on the 1987 novel by uh, Taichi Yamada. Uh, and that's more of a traditional ghost story. And Haig wanted to move away from that with this. So this is much more of a kind of a, I guess, a meditation on grief, a psychological study, almost like a metaphysical experiment. But it, it starts Andrew Scott as Adam. He's a, a queer man living in a tower block in central London where very few other residents are there. And one day runs into Harry, played by Paul Meskel, and there's a frisson between them. Uh, And essentially the film is the development of that love affair, that relationship, while also being set against the fact that he keeps returning to his childhood home and talking to his parents, played by Jamie Bell and Claire Foy, who died in a car crash 30 years ago. So it's it's really hard to pin down what this is, but at its very sort of essence, I think, it is a study of the Bond's between people. It's a study of relationships. It's about familial relationships, parental love. It's about romantic love. It's about the bittersweet tang of when they 
fall apart, about the, you know, the promise and the joy of, of the potential of new things. And it's him and it's all of his, his, because I should point out, obviously, Andrew Scott's 20 years older than Paul Meskell. And one of the threads here is that he is a queer man who grew up in the 80s with the shadow of AIDS over him. And it's coming to terms with his queerness now as a very lonely adult, when for so many years he dealt with the shame and frankly, the danger of being a gay man. Uh, and then dealing with the, and I use the word loosely, ghosts of his parents and almost coming out to his dead parents. Quite literally. Quite really? literally. Yeah. And it's absolutely fucking magical this film mm. is. Like mm. it is the performances that they aren't nominated for absolutely everything. I mean Andrew Scott not getting a BAFTA nomination is absolutely insane. Yeah. No nothing about this film getting recognized by the Oscars is egregious. Mm -hmm. It is just remarkable and it is almost exquisitely melancholy like it's it is a downer absolutely but it's not depressing it really just it taps directly into your emotional core and you feel every frame of this and at the you know as you get through it you just feel it sort of pulling on your heartstrings and sort of opening your mind to these ideas and these feelings and and on all of the regrets that he has and how he almost can't get out of his own patterns of behavior and get out of his own way uh, it's a wonderful character study it's incredibly emotionally honest and honestly i just think it's something everyone should see yeah, I 100% co-sign all of that. I think it's mm. just beautiful, just stunningly beautiful. And it is all about, yeah, being stuck in a sort of limbo and finding your way out of that through your connections with and your exploration of those connections with other people. Um, his scenes with his parents are heartbreaking and beautiful and, and also uplifting. It's not, I mean, I, I actually don't think it's a downer. I think it's downbeat, but mm. not a downer in a weird way, you know. Um, I, I came out of it feeling very, very good about the world in a strange sense, because I felt like there's so much hope and there's so much love in the in the connections we have with each other. Um, not us, obviously. <laughs> not yeah. us, you're but, yeah, other, but, yeah. uh. um, but but no, it's just it's just brilliant and and great great performances. But particularly Scott, actually, I thought mm. Meskel was great, but yeah. Scott was was better actually. I, it's hard to pin. I mean, Scott definitely has a lot more sort of scope in what his character Maybe does. So, yeah. mm. But I thought what Meskel did, certainly in those early scenes when he establishes that character, I mean, he's an incredibly versatile actor and I just think mm. he's, he's, I do think he's wonderful. Andrew Scott just has, I hate using the term face acting because it seems really reductive, but he has such a soulful, expressive face with those huge eyes and you do feel like you're gazing into his soul through, mm. like he does mm. so much with this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful and I know it's a massively personal study for Haig and I just think everyone involved in this should be given all of the awards that they were denied. Yeah. Look, we'll take that one off, Albert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with all of that. I would only add that the score by Emily Lebanese Farouch mm. is fantastic as well. I first took notice of her, I think a couple years back when she scored Living, the mm. Bill Nye film. film. Uh, there's a track on that score called Tent, which is one of my favorite tracks of that year. It's, in it's incredible. And there's a couple of tracks in this score, which is great. There's a track called Diner, which takes place at a diner. It's one of the scenes late on in the film. And it's probably the one that I had the biggest emotional reaction to. Um, and it's really beautifully done. It adds to the scene without dominating the scene. Um, and sometimes that's a tricky balance for composers to get right, but she absolutely nails it. And obviously she's the composer from Living, the, I think it's the cinematographer from, from Living, uh, James Ramsey, also mm. shoots this. Oh. And it looks absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And also mm. allows me to say, he shoots, she scores. <laughs> oh. Very good. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, that was a five-star film, that is. 100%, yeah.
Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were doing so well. Where are we then? <laughs> such, such a beautiful review of a, a film I haven't seen yet, uh, I, I will say. But uh, a film I'm very much looking forward to. And then, and then you did that. <laughs> Five stars then for all of us strangers. One star for James's joke. <laughs> uh, let's move on to the color purple. I'm on. As you were saying, this is another Mean Girl situation because uh, this is based on ni- uh, the 1982 Alice Walker novel, um, which then became a 1985 Steven Spielberg film, uh, starring Oprah Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg, incredible film, uh, which then became a Broadway musical in 2005. And now we're getting... Is it that long ago? Yeah. Yeah, but we but you have probably heard about it with the Cynthia Revo Cynthia Revo one. Revival, yeah. which was what, 2000... 13, something like that. I would need to check that. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to take your word for it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, now we're getting the film and I feel like what Blitz has done here is sort of take elements from uh, sort of all of those and then add in his own thing uh, with this, which is a film that I really, really love. In case you haven't watched any of those Color Purple or read any of the Color Purple adaptations uh, that I've just listed, this is the story of Seeley. Uh, who here is portrayed by Fantasia Barino as an adult. She starred as Silly on Broadway. She's reprising the role uh, on film here. Mm. Uh, she's a woman in the 20s America South. Um, and this is her sort of finding her way through her life, I guess, because uh, in the early going, she gets separated from her younger sister, uh, played by Halle Bailey. Uh, her name is Nettie. Uh, and she gets sold by her father to an abusive husband played by Colman Domingo. Uh, his mm. name is Mr. Colman Domingo, by the way, is having a moment because between this and Rustin, he's just incredible. I think he mm. actually might be better in this than he is in Rustin uh, to a degree, which is, I don't say that lightly because he's incredible in Rustin. Um, and yeah, she's dealing with all of that. And I think for me, the best thing about this film is the performances. Fantasia Barino is exceptional in this role and when this film is on song and dance mode she is especially incredible there's a there's a song late on uh where blitz just knows to just move everything else out of the way and keep the camera fixed on her basically and she knocks it out of the park mm. uh she's great uh danielle brooks uh, who we know from Peacemaker. Yes. She uh, is also reprising uh, the role on screen here that she did on on stage. And her character, Sophia, she's the real crowd pleaser of this film because she's very assertive and forward and she doesn't really give a crap what anyone else uh, says, especially men. She's going to sort of make her thoughts and feelings known. Um, and that leads to a number of very, very funny moments. She goes on her own journey that is very heartbreaking and heart-wrenching, but um, she plays all those emotions very effectively. And that leads me to my next point, which is really this one was about Black sisterhood and supporting one another and lifting each other up. And that really comes to the fore in the final act, which is very potent for me. Um, so yeah, I, I really, really like this. The song and dance is great. The choreography when they're doing it is really, really good too. There's a couple of really great standout numbers. Push the Button, uh, by which is sung by Suge, Suge Avery's Taraji, mm-hmm. uh, who's played by Taraji Pianson, um, who's getting 
she should be getting more awards uh, consideration than I think she she has been. She's fantastic in this. I think she, she feels the same way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's, yes, she's been she's she's been on the um, promo trail talking about yeah. the disparity of pay and all the rest mm-hmm. of it, and mm-hmm. she's well within her rights to do that. I think it's absolutely, absolutely nonsense. Absolutely. She's she's had an incredible career. She should be commanding a lot more without having to fight for so much. Um, but she's fantastic in this as well. So yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, I think it. I think it looks beautiful. I think he really his yeah. eye for this is is astonishing. And I would also um, sort of shout out um, Felicia Pearl and Mpassi. Uh, yes. He plays the young Seeley, mm-hmm. who is wonderful, absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful in the in that role. Um, I, I I liked it a lot. I didn't I didn't love it as much as the stage show. Maybe because the stage show version that I saw with Cynthia Revo is so fresh in my head and mm. she, and and I think it actually helped that in a way that you can't do on screen they had one person playing Celie the whole way through and mm. you you heard her evolution she sang differently mm. and so I did I did kind of miss that and I absolutely understand why they didn't do it here it would have looked weird on screen mm-hmm. you would have had aging makeup and all sorts of things mm-hmm. um and it's not to say anybody does a bad uh, performance here but I I did kind of miss the the intimacy and the immediacy of that because I thought she was she was just off the charts brilliant mm-hmm. um but it is, it's really, really beautifully made and the songs are delivered very, very well. Not everybody here is mm. a professional singer, but you wouldn't, you'd um, have trouble telling which ones weren't, you know? Yeah. Another thing that I liked about this, the musical element at times, at plenty of times, they are using songs from, they are using sounds rather from the world to sort of ease you into the musical number, mm. like foot stomps and stuff would be the thing to... Uh, to start the rhythm going exactly and I think that was really cleverly done fantastic Uh, again uh, in a post episode 600 uh, fugue state I haven't seen (laughs) any of the films this week so uh, I have missed the colour purple Uh, but four stars four stars indeed for the colour purple Uh, and it means I've also missed Jackdaw which is a British thriller starring Oliver Jackson Cohen Jenna Coleman and Thomas Turgus Hell's Bells Mm. you have seen Jackdaw I have. Yes, yeah, so um, Oliver Jackson Cohen plays Jack Dawson, hence Jack Dawson, see what they've done there. And he's a former motocross bike biker, I don't know what the terms are, um, <laughs> who went off to join the army. Basically, he didn't get along, he had a, an abusive father, we learned pretty early on, and he he, he left town. Uh, leaving his brother, who has Down syndrome, he's played by Leon um, Harrop, who's great in this, um, behind. He comes back because their mother has died and he needs to take care of his brother, Simon. Um, And uh, perhaps unwisely, he agrees to do one of these one last jobs for a local drug dealer. Yeah. So he can set himself and Simon up in, in, you know, relative comfort or get them a start, you know, get them away, get them to a new place. Simon cautions against this. To be fair, he's a smart kid. Uh, and Jack doesn't listen, and wouldn't you know, things go a bit south on him, and he has to basically start going on a on a run around the country trying to get the money he's owed. Uh, also, pretty soon, Simon himself, Simon's in danger, and he has to figure out no. how to help his brother. I know, no. you didn't see it coming. Uh, Jenna Coleman is his ex, uh, who's still into the motocross stuff and still on the scene. Thomas Turgo's base is really fun, and the film picks up pace so much when he's on screen he is this like club kid who jack ends up teaming up with uh and has to figure some stuff out with um he's a lot of fun i won't say too much more about him because you're best just discovering his slightly inept attempts to help for yourself um so 
I, I really wanted to love this because mm -hmm. uh, they were clearly very proud. All the all the publicity material and stuff that we've had for this has been really trumpeting the fact that it's made by people from and around the northeast of England, that it is shot on location there. It's really, you know, it's somewhere that's really wearing its location very proudly on its sleeve. And it does do some very clever things. The director and writer, Jamie Childs, um, knows how to, you know, stage an action scene. He's done a lot of big, big scale TV, Sandman, things like that in the last few years. And, you know, he's got sort of like this motocross bikes, like running around the sand dunes and, well, I guess driving around the sand dunes. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and you know, he's got a, a an action scene that takes place out on a wind farm out to sea, which is not something I've seen a million times. So that was really fun. But the story and some of the tone of this felt really 90s to me. So it ended up feeling weirdly dated. I think a lot of that does come from the score as well. The score felt really sort of like wannabe prodigy kind of stuff it's 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 by deadly avenger and cybeg and i just find it a bit overwhelming at times as well um but you know good performances decent action scenes it just didn't quite feel as fresh or as exciting as i wanted it to all right what would you give it i would probably go a high two, a it, high two. yeah it's it's that area you know it's like it's not it's not terrible i wouldn't like judge you for watching it i just didn't quite deliver what i was hoping for all right okay uh, two Helen stars in for Jackdaw. I don't know if there is an official Empire review, but Helen has given it two stars. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Uh, join us next week for more no wait there's another guest shit it's going to get even longer this podcast <laughs> <laughs> we were banging on about them so much I almost forgot to include them Andrew Scott and Paul Meskell you heard all about how great they are in All of Us Strangers and they are great together as well like one of the lovely things about the last month or so has been watching them crop up on different talk shows and mm. things like that and they've been in the press circuit and they, they, you know, they've got this really lovely friendship uh, going on uh, the two of them two Irish actors of course um, and uh, I was uh, lucky enough to be in the room for this interview last week I was doing press record and then mm. press stop uh, mm -hmm. but Alex Godfrey is the guy who got to speak to them both and this is a really really fun and interesting interview uh, here's Paul Meskell and Andrew Scott do please enjoy Paul Mesco, Andrew Scott, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How are you doing? Doing great, great thank yeah. you. How was your morning so far? Yeah, a couple good. of interviews. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. good. Chitty chat, chat, chat. Yeah, yeah, Swanning yeah. around London town. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah, Painting we had a little walk red. this morning through yeah. Soho, which was actually oh, delightful. Oh, yeah. yeah what did you get up to in Soho? <laughs> sometimes when you're doing these things, <laughs> you go from... pints. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We went to um, the Wax Museum. <laughs> Not of two sorts. Uh, went into a matinee. Yeah. <laughs> we took in a show. Yeah. <laughs> Not like we got up at 3am for all this thing. Yeah. yeah, we did. Yeah, We like to get up early before early we do birds, press. Etc. Yeah. Well, it's good to see you both, especially after I've just eaten you. Have you seen these? Um... <laughs> Have you <laughs> seen the cupcakes? More. Yeah. I've, heard, I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't what I expected to see or to eat for breakfast. So yeah. there are these, um, oh, this is great for uh, podcast listeners, yeah. but um, there are... Um, there are all of us strangers branded cupcakes yeah. in the other wow, room really? and they have um, little pictures of both of you, yeah. which which are edible. I very okay. rudely take, took the chocolate bit off the top of my publicist cupcake like a diva right. and <laughs> ate that bit. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever eaten uh, photos of yourself before? Mm. Do you know what I'd say? I probably have. Yeah. I actually would say I probably, <laughs> that's not the first time I've seen a cupcake. Yeah, with I think. Or you could, sometimes you get like cookies latte or whatever. Art. Have you seen that one? Oh, yeah, the studios latte, in, uh, Toronto, they make Toronto. these like latte art with your like right. character's face. faces on it. It's a really cupcake 
mistakes are kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is nothing. Yeah. Uh, but also, like, fan, you get fan cookies that are in the shape I of your face. I haven't got those. Or well, you both tasted good anyway. Okay, Great. Glad yeah. to hear it. Yeah. Glad to be of service. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, look, if nothing else. If nothing else. Exactly. If this interview yeah. is a gross disappointment to you. Yeah, look, look, the, the, film, the film is fine. Cupcakes. That's what you want. Christ. You want a Paul Mescal and yeah. just got cupcake. You don't want yeah. to be watching the Mac. Was this how it was pitched to you? That we're going to make a film and then there's going to be cupcakes. There's going to be cupcakes. Yeah. That would actually work on my own on, on, with me. What's those ones? You know, the cupcakes that you can get in the train station, the Lola's cupcakes. Oh, my God. They're pretty good. I have a Lola's cupcake story. Go on. I won a prize for acting. And it was a, for the theatre for theatre prize, critic circle prize. And you got a big, um, oh, I got a big frame thing to say that you'd won the prize. And I was walking home from the from the award show, and I was like, oh, do you know what I love? It's a Lola's cupcake. And I went in Blackfriars Station, and I left my award there, Jesus. which is, doesn't it doesn't reflect very well on me. But I went back. And I went, where's that award? And I went back a couple of days later to Lola's Cupcakes and they had kept it for me. That sounds... So lovely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So sorry, that's a digression. The good people... Well, look, this is on a podcast now, so maybe you'll get a lifetime supply of Lola's Cupcakes. Oh my God. I promise that's not what my my thinking was, but... It should be. If that happens... uh, Like, if you get it... And and me too, please, by the way. Exactly. And everybody... I let the record show that I brought up Lola's Cupcakes (laughs) first. (laughs) And it would mean the world. Yeah, exactly. It would mean the world. Other cupcakes are available. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so this this film it it killed me honestly I've seen it twice I cannot stop thinking about it Um, we ran a great feature with Andrew Haig in the magazine Um, it's great to meet you now I've written a review which is going to be published soon I'm telling everybody this film has destroyed I mean I I know it looks like I'm here but I'm not I'm dead (laughs) (laughs) genuinely I've died Um, I remember the first time I saw it when the end credits came on, I couldn't genuinely, it sounds like one of those stupid things people say, I couldn't get up. I could not get out of my seat because of all of the feelings. And it was pretty much the same the second time around. Um, Is this the response you're basically getting from people? And what is that like when you've, you know, you've, you've read your script, you've made your film and now you've, you've destroyed people. (laughs) It is a really like I know it sounds kind of perverse or weird, but there is something satisfying about it when you like that's the kind of desired intention of a script like this. Yeah. It's not like a, I think I and and to kind of jump in on the fact I don't think the film is utterly devastating. No, in a, in a kind of bleak capacity, I think it's really um, actually f- the sadness comes out of the hope, like what what the film is trying to say, or th- that that's my reading of it. Yeah. To see the kind, of, yeah, it's great if you can move people like. If you can move people to tears or laughter, like yeah. that's it's such a joy. That's I agree, and it, it, it's not. I mean, it is very sad and devastating, but it is also beautiful, mm-hmm. and it's full of life and light. But yeah. I think that's the that's why it finishes, and you go, I just don't know what to do with myself because yeah. yeah. you're full of this whirlwind of emotions. Yeah, I think it sort of cracks you open. I love that expression. It's a Shakespeare thing. He says it just show it's the purpose of art or acting or whatever is to, is to hold a mirror up to nature. And I think that's what it is. I think there's just something that I think because we all have parents mm-hmm. and I think we're all children and I think we all have a relationship with romantic love and a, maybe a need for romantic love or at least to be seen. I think there's just something, it sounds a little bit sell, 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 but there's something for everyone in the film yeah. and something at the end. I think 
there's something just so cathartic about it. And like in talking about the film, I think we're very anxious to to for people to know that it's an emotional film and there's catharsis in it, but it's not bleak in mm-hmm. any way. It's completely hopeful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when people talk about endings of films, um, you know, and they're like, oh, I want the, the oh, you know, uh, whether it's a happy ending or whether it's a, w- we see it as a really hopeful, very, mm-hmm. the ending destroys me. It really does. Yeah. Um, and on that already, I should explain to our listeners what the film is. Um, directed and written, adapted from a novel by the great Andrew Haig. Yeah. Um, it's about a screenwriter, Andrew, your character, who's trying to write about his past and his upbringing yeah. and um, I guess trying to unlock his own trauma. Yeah. Um, he's writing about his childhood and he ends up going to revisit his childhood home and finds his parents who are dead, but now they're not dead. Um, and meanwhile, he strikes relationship relationship up with uh, your character Paul, and um, and it's just I don't I don't want to give any more story mm, yeah. than that because it's yeah. just this beautiful exploration I think of loss and love and light and trauma and connection, and people should just go and yeah. see it because yeah. it is not like anything else I've ever seen, and just the atmosphere in the film is not like anything else I've ever Absolutely, seen. Absolutely, yeah. After you'd both read the script and had meetings with Andrew Haig. Were there creative discussions that you had with him or maybe together about, okay, now we're going to make the thing. How are we going to go about it? What sort of, what do we need to do to create the sort of end product? Um, What do you think? Like like there was practical things for me, which was, it's, it always sounds basic, so it's, it's actually, I think, trying to make it sound as unimportant as possible because the, I knew the process for this was going to be made in the room with Andrew, or my my yeah. portion of it was going to be made in connection and, and, and contact with Andrew and Andrew Haig. Yeah. But it was like basic things like placing Harry outside of London because it makes narrative sense that his relationship with his family is kind of fractured, so I wanted him to kind of be isolated in a massive city but to be removed from his family and so that's why we settled on a Leeds accent for example so it's just kind of creating yeah practical distance for the character for those things that he talks about with his family to have a more um have have an easier emotional landing point and make sense for an audience but in terms of our stuff together i think it was always and we, I never really questioned that we were going to be on the same page, which actually now no. sounds risky. But yeah, like, I know, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I think we knew that. Oh, I, I think the script was really extraordinary to start with. I mean, genuinely yeah. singular. Yeah. You know, it's a very singular film, but it certainly was a really si- singular script and very actable dialogue. Yeah, and we were talking about this the other day together. That that actually, what you want to do is to be able to not is to honor that dialogue and to be able to maintain that feeling that you had when you first read it and not take away from it or not gild the lily not overdo it not underdo it and just to be able to hit those hit those notes and that was certainly you know something that we had to talk about in relation to the verbal uh, communication that they had with each other but also we had the 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 physical communication yeah. that we had because that's how these two characters express each other and in a similar way with with Jamie and Claire because that character they play your parents because they, they yeah. were my, my parents yeah. and to try for me the big challenge was to try and access that childishness um, that you that he so uh, misses and so um longs for again yeah. to go back to that childhood place so actually that was very physical as well a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about was how you are with your parents when you're a child and how you 
um, snuggle into them or how you remember their smell or how you adore them, how you look at them even. It's an extraordinary thing that that taps into. And it reminded me, not, um, I won't talk about myself for, for too long, but oh, I did, uh, 15 or something years ago, or my brother got married and I, I was his best man and I did the speech. Um, so I did a 10, 15 minute speech. And one of the lines I wrote in there was that, um, I can't remember exactly what I was talking about now, but I wrote that um, we'll always be our parents' children. Yeah, you know? mm, and so I yeah. would have been, I don't know, however old already at that point. And I just thought it was quite a clever thing to write at the time. Mm-hmm. And then when I got up there, and it was a big wedding, there was like 300 people there. When it came to, and I'm, you know, I was at the table, my mum and dad were mm. both there, mm. still alive, both there. But when it came to me speaking that line, it suddenly really hit me. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. felt yeah. really yeah. emotional about yeah, of it. Of course, of course. And I didn't know why, but there is something really primal and spooky about it. Well, because there's great truth in what you mm. wrote. Mm. Th- that's why it's so it's inescapable isn't it yeah. you, you, that, that's that's what you were given and mm. they're the only two people I remember my parents talking about and when me and my sister were very young uh-huh. apparently we for some reason we were about three and four it started calling them by their names Jim and Nora right? really and they didn't really mind and whatever that's what's going on and my grandmother said to my dad she was like well you're the only two people in the world they're the only people that can call you mum and dad you know, everyone else can call you Jim and Nora. And they were like, oh, yes. Yeah. So then they slightly um, encouraged us to go, go back to mum and dad. Some, some weird, probably yeah. three week phase. Yeah. They were like, their names are Jim and Nora. And so we called <laughs> yeah. them that for ages. But I think there's something in that as well, where you just go, that is, a, is that, it's such a, it's such a particular relationship that, um, yeah, that uh, you can't escape from. Yeah. So you two knew each other a little bit um beforehand but not a lot and your i guess your friendship and relationship grew during the course of making the film when you watch it now um can you see what (laughs) (laughs) i i remember the second time we watched the first time me and andrew saw the film we just white knuckled us through you're like yeah it's it's really good you're great but the second time i watched it it was andrew wasn't there and like people talk about sex scenes and and I'm really proud of the sex scenes in this, but the, I remember saying to Andrew, I was like, I have no memory of looking at you that way. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you're like beside, the, when he's beside the bath and I'm just like staring at your lips. I'm like, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's a lot. But it's, it's yeah. like all of that stuff is indicative of, like if I didn't trust Andrew, mm. I couldn't even, because th- I'm not even thinking, of, that's not even a choice in my head. Like that's not yeah. an active choice no, yeah, yeah. for me to like, yeah. I'm going to look at your lips now because yeah. that's like, yeah, a good. That's indicative of chemistry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's all of those things that I just find. That's what I love seeing in films in general. Like especially even when when you're not in it, it's even easier to enjoy that. Yeah. But like when you see actors that you're aware that there's something going on that they either worked really hard together or there's a there's a natural chemistry there that you're getting all of this kind of humanity for free. Yeah. Which yeah. I I. I mm personally love to watch well that's sort of what i was going to ask um is that when you do when you do watch it now can you see your chemistry the fact that it would have grown during the course of making the film can you see that reflected in some of the scenes in the film can you see how i knew you much better to be more comfortable doing this sort of thing i I think so perhaps yeah i I definitely feel i feel it's, it's the most exposing film i've ever watching relationship going oh wow that's really and it's exactly like what paul was saying there i think there's something you know when you're acting you don't and not everything is a choice mm. i think you make a choice to 
have abandon and to be to yeah, really yeah, listen yeah. and to go and to really enjoy playing love. But it's you know when when people um, talk about oh was that a choice and you think well that's spe the specificity of certain choices yeah. wasn't made, but the idea to to really listen and to be yeah. present as much as possible. And when you really enjoy acting with someone and you really enjoy watching them act, because that's another thing, when you're someone's acting partner, yeah. you're actually the first audience. It's my favorite thing yeah. about this whole film is like watching an audience encounter his performance for the first time. Yeah. But I'm the only person who has like that full perspective. Like the camera can only get so close in essence. Like, yeah. Can you imagine... Like I'm st stood here, seeing your eyes, seeing the whole. It's my favorite thing about acting, but especially to do with this performance and one of my favorite performances that I've ever seen from another human being. And I had the great privilege of watching it, like sometimes mouth to mouth. <laughs> like it's yeah, like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm that close. Yeah, yeah. And it, like hands down, there's there's moments and uh, and like I feel like I can remember the t I can recognize the takes that Andrew has used in the film. Yeah, from my own. Yeah, and, my we, own and that's a really interesting thing because, you, of course, you have the director and Andrew's incredible. We both really, really trusted him. But when you have actor, you know, it, when you're working with somebody that you really trust the taste of, you're able to sort of say that was really good. You know, the thing, yeah, the, the, yeah. you know, you know, you're able to support each other and to see each other because sometimes you're able to see some, we're able to see each other, see, see something yeah. in each other's performances that nobody else has really noticed yet. Because there is a difference when you go back and you look at it. Because the most important thing you can do as an actor is to listen. And the person who should be listening most acutely to the actor performing is the other actor. Yeah, actually, yeah. And so, I don't know, there's something really interesting when you go, oh, that person really cares about my performance or you really care about theirs. And it's That's also before really, it's blown yeah. up onto like yeah. a massive projection. It's like, People are watching it on tiny four yeah, by four exactly. monitors yeah, at that exactly. point, and, and you, you have the you have the best perspective as an actor, I think, yeah, at, yeah, at that moment. Yeah, yeah, you two obviously got to know each other very well. There, there seems to, this film was about love on many levels, and mm -hmm. there are different sorts of love. It seems to me like I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me like you two actually love each other. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And it seems it's going to be very sad when this promo is over because mm -hmm. you're not going to spend all this time together. If you could get together again, make another film, let's say polar opposite of this one. Mm. What would you want to? What if you could? If you had any choice, and you two could team up again, what would you want to do? I was thinking maybe I'd love to do a road movie, like yeah, a, like like a, like a road movie, like playing like bandits of some sort. Yeah, that's like, a great idea. I like Route sixty six, like yeah, cool costumes, exactly. like quite violent, but like exactly kinetic. Yeah, something where they've got a big comedy, challenge. like a black yeah. comedy, yeah, where they've got a big challenge. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thelma and Louise, man. Thelma, yeah, Thelma, Thelma and Louise. Louise. Absolutely, that's a great that would, idea. That would be so fun. That, that's a great. If anybody's yeah. listening, and we could we hey, like you, make you, it you over can... like two years, so it's like a really long shoot. <laughs> <Yeah. choose. laughs> yeah. Paul, you should just text Ridley. Text Ridley, yeah, yeah. Ridley. Let's do a remake. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, Thelma and Louise. People would, can you imagine how much people would hate the idea of that remake of Thelma and no, Louise? No, it's changing the S to, in Louise to a dollar sign. It's, it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Thelma and Louise, what a movie. But yeah, something, something, something like that. Change the name to Timmy and Larry. <laughs> Timmy, Timmy and Larry. Sean, 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 Sean Connor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, on that bombshell. Yeah, um, you heard it here first. <laughs> and maybe last. Yeah. But, uh, Paul <laughs> Mescal, Andrew Scott, thank you so, thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right, that was Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott. And now it is time to end this week's 
Empire Podcast. Any other guests lurking around? <laughs> Anyone you want to throw in uh, at the last minute? Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by... It's another bumper one, folks. It's another bumper one. I'm not going to lie to you. We'll be joined by Kamel Nanjiani, mm-hmm. star of Migration. We're also going to be joined by Henry Cavill and Sam Rockwell, stars of Argyle. Oh no, is Cavill reloading his arms again? Oh my God. Oh my God. Can you imagine? (laughs) Until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. One of whom has checked out and is, I shit you not, watching episodes of a TV show for the Pilot TV podcast. Which I have to record in 25 minutes. Yes, this is absolutely true. And if you listen to Pilot, you will see how spectacularly unprepared I am when that airs on Monday. Oh my God. Remember when I said right back at the beginning of this podcast, which was about four weeks ago, if you cast your mind back, uh, that we attack these things with a certain a certain rigor. Uh, yes. James attacks his job with a certain exuberance. And let's be honest, incompetence. Uh, yes, goodbye, James. Goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, it's goodbye from, uh, yeah, it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. I, I, I looked at you. Goodbye, Helen. That's how I work. <laughs> I say goodbye to things that my eyes fall upon. <laughs> goodbye, microphone. Goodbye, computer screen. <laughs> goodbye, Helen O'Hara. Oh, I'm sorry. I was still thinking about Henry Cavill reloading. <laughs> <laughs> um, imagine a little spritz of cologne. Oh, <laughs> Bringing her right back. Right back. <laughs> And I have to finish with Amon Warman, the second best dressed man in this room right now, but my God, the best smelling. (laughs) I should probably say what I'm smelling. Oh, right, I've got Dolce & Gabbana. It's vaguely of piss. (laughs) We've established that. Wow. (laughs) What is it? I I had a squirt of Dolce & Gabbana. Hello, steady. Hang on. You're you're mixing and matching scents. Yeah. Freak show. (laughs) He's like a mad professor. Oh, he, have, you, have you seen it's smelling with your eyes? Have you, <laughs> have you seen or indeed red perfume? No. I'm starting to suspect you should. James, 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 James. He doesn't have time to read perfume. He's got to read 25 Jack Reacher novels immediately after this. Uh, anyway, it's goodbye. Oh my god. <sighs> run away, I'm on. Run far away, all the way to the FBI. <laughs> Peace. Uh, peace, peace, peace be on to you, Amon. Uh, it's goodbye for me. I am off to, well, A, edit this, B, have a nervous breakdown, and C, get you your Reacher novels, Amon. Thank you so much. You're about to take your first steps into a larger world, and I mean larger world. 150 pounds, six Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. No middle name, no. No middle name. Very important. And nobody calls him Jack. You call him Jack to his face, and something is wrong. Mm. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.